I think the highest state of mastery is looking at your life as, you know, a masterpiece. And what does that look like for you? And accepting your shortfalls and when you're not, you know, in states of mastery, whether it's in your professional life or you, your own personal goals, but looking at it, zooming out and looking at it as a whole, your life as a masterpiece. Hey guys, this is Julie, Zach's girlfriend. I've taken over the mic because I'm pretty sure I do a better job at it than he does. So before we start the episode that unfortunately you'll be hearing Zach in, this is a quick reminder to check out Oxoro Premium, the best deal in premium podcasting. For just $5 a month, you get bonus episodes spanning pop culture, politics, drugs, love, philosophy, science, and more. You also gain access to the unlicensed series where he gives his an expert opinion on all things dating, sex, and relationship, and is completely unqualified to do so. But it is also way cheaper than an actual therapist, so there you go. On Oxoro Premium, you also get exclusive Ask Him Anything episodes, the ability to suggest topics for the podcast, and the entire back catalog of archived episodes. There's over 25 hours of premium content already posted, and it grows each month. Plus, by joining Oxoro Premium, you can actually harass Zach so that I'm on the podcast more and until I take it over. So go to oxoro.supercast.com today. That's Oxoro, A-U-X-O-R-O dot supercast.com to get all those benefits on Oxoro Premium for only $5 a month. Oxoro.supercast.com for five bucks to join the premium gang today. Now, on to the episode. You're about to listen to a conversation with Gavin Chops. This is round two with Gavin on the Oxoro podcast, and damn, I'm glad he's back. Gavin is the drummer for Chelsea Cutler and the co-founder of Pack Records and Pack Management. This is the Oxoro podcast, and I'm Zach, your host. To support it, please check out Oxoro Premium, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Gavin Chops. I've never tried consistent therapy, but I've always wanted to give it a chance. I, tr- I tried it a couple times. Uh, my older brother actually, he was, he was going to therapy during the pandemic and mm-hmm. he started it right before. And me and my brother sat in on it with him a couple sessions over Zoom and I said I I remember thinking about things in a way that I I hadn't before because the the therapist kind of gave me and my brother homework to do because mm-hmm. she knew we weren't doing it consistently at least not at that point but it, it definitely did it definitely did force me to think about some things in a way that it's easier to deflect on something like a podcast where you just make a joke or you go to the next topic and you're like Haha, like. Yeah, that thing from my childhood. By the way, like how how have things been with you? Because you can't you can't just ask that to your therapist yeah. without them knowing what you're doing. They're totally. on to. I just started therapy um, two months ago, and it's been cool. 
Like I, I like it. It's uh, given me new perspectives on my life, and yeah. I decided to do it because I felt that I was in a period of growth for myself and understanding myself, and there were elements that I was trying to either fix or get get closer to, but I couldn't, and yeah. I wanted help, you know, along the way on, you know. I feel like, you know, the path to inner growth is constant. So having a, a like a partner um helped me sort through some things. Yeah. Um it's been pretty cool and you know, it's also validating like um it's one of the things that for me is I'm really really hard on myself. Like I feel like most creatives or entrepreneurs are really really hard on themselves. Mm. We hold ourselves up to so many standards and you know social media you see all these other people doing things or it seems like they're doing these amazing things all the time and so now you're holding yourself to match their standards and you can really be a negative force upon yourself and say really mean things to yourself in your mind when you find yourself not being consistent Mm. or not standing up to those standards. Yeah. I I was literally just doing this last night with the, this would be the podcast version of being hard on yourself. The one thing that I've noticed with podcasting is that the, the podcasters and the podcast producers that are creating the most exciting reels Mm -hmm. are winning just in terms of getting engagement and content. So I'm looking at other podcasts like Flagrant 2 with Andrew Schultz and Akash Singh. I don't know if you ever listened to Flagrant 2. No, I haven't. Two two comedians, fucking hilarious. And their real game, whoever their producer is, I don't know if they do it themselves or they they definitely have the budget to hire someone because they're one of the highest paid podcasts on Patreon. I'm looking at their real page on Instagram and I'm just like, holy fuck, the tech, like... I w- <laughs> you have to be like obsessed with reels for this to go through your mind. I'm like the text game, the highlight, the way the text pops up on the screen is out of control. The way the colors highlight each letter first and then the text goes away. And it's it's not just popping up on the page. Like every piece of text is like zooming out in different directions and then the graphics with it. I'm just, I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, Jesus Christ, like... I, I'm not, I'm never going to get one more listener on this podcast because this, (laughs) these reels are so fucking out of control. But, and then that voice comes into your head and I have to remind myself that, yeah, I am, I'm doing the best version of what I'm doing with the budget and the time that I have. And I'm, I'm assuming it's a, a similar type of voice that enters your head in those times. Is it like you, you have to tell yourself, you know, with, with what I'm doing and with what I have, my particular journey with my, the resources at the current moment, I am doing my best or not doing my best, depending on how you evaluate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning to be kinder to myself. It's been a struggle for me always. Um, but I'm learning to know that I'm doing the best that I can with mm. m- whatever experiences I'm going through. You know, I'm doing the best that I can. And it's in therapy, it's been very validating because, you know, we've known each other for two months now and he can, he, he can kind of see the person I am. I've kind of told him everything about my life, um, to what, you know, to what extent, um, like I, I, I have zero 
I'm holding back nothing, you know? And he, our last session, he really validated me that I am a person who does my, my best and, um, and whatever I'm doing. And so knowing that and having that in my mind, it makes me feel a lot better in those moments when I'm really hard on myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what makes me really hard on myself is I've seen what happens when you master something or that road to mastery when you hit a point after being consistent for so long and you hit this really great stride or something amazing happens. And so you know how good that feels. And when you get, for me, when I get off the rails or I don't feel like I'm being consistent in certain categories of my life, where I feel when I was consistent in those parts, all these great things happened. I start telling myself all kinds of horrible mm. things. Do you feel the expectation to continue the mastery in a constant fashion? Because a lot of times I'll experience what I perceive as mastery and I don't, the way that I think about it is that those moments where I feel like I'm in absolute flow state or I'm mastering something, I feel like there's an extra element, whether it's spiritual or energetic or intellectual, I don't know. There's something, there's something that feels like it comes into me in those moments, but then that thing is not in me 24 seven. That thing might be in me eight podcasts out of an entire year, mm -hmm. eight out of 75 or whatever, but I expect it to be there every single time. And not that the, the content suffers in the eyes of the listener when that thing isn't there, but it's, it's more of a, a perception for myself where I'm, because I don't feel like I'm in that mastery flow state, I'll, you know, lash myself, uh, you know, uh, it's not lash myself with thoughts of asking myself, why can't I be like this all the time? But it's also such an unfucking realistic thing to be like, I need to stay in this constant state of mastery because it ebbs and flows. Yeah, it's, it's ebbs and flows. It's, I don't think it's possible to be in that state of mastery forever. And if you are doing that, good for you. But I don't think for me personally, that's a very human thing. There's, especially in the past 12 months of my life, there's been a lot of challenging moments where being in that state of mastery was not possible. Um, but I think the highest state of mastery is looking at your life as, you know, a masterpiece. And what does that look like for you? And accepting your shortfalls and when you're not, you know, in states of mastery, whether it's in your professional life or your, your own personal goals, but looking at it, zooming out and looking at it as a whole, your life as a masterpiece. Yeah. And I think a masterpiece, in order for it to be you know, perfect, is you have to have these ranges of emotions, these bad experiences, these great experiences, these highs and lows. That's fulfilling. That's a full life. There's power in that. There's deep emotion in that. So when you look back at everything you've done and you're proud of your masterpiece and it expresses something, it expresses a life. Yeah. I, I don't know if you do this, but so, sometimes when I, I feel like I need a boost, I'll just, I'll focus on something so ridiculously small, like, like making an, an Irish coffee. If I feel mm -hmm. like nothing 
nothing that day is going right, I will attempt at least to take a step back mm-hmm. and think, okay, right now I need to master the shit out of <laughs> making a French press coffee and pouring a shot of whiskey in it and adding some, some silver bullets. Maybe if it's an iced coffee, I want it to be nice and cold. Um, and then I'll make it and then I'll get, I'll try to pump myself up for that small thing that literally anyone of any intellectual capacity could make an Irish coffee. It's probably, that's the reason why there's so many alcoholics is because it's too easy to master (laughs) making a drink. It's too easy to uh, buy the ingredients and just make yourself feel like a bartender every single night, which um, I definitely did a lot of that when things were closed down, but I'll take this super small thing and I'll put more self, uh, I'll pump myself up more than I usually would. And then I hope that that carries over into the the rest of the shit that I'm doing that day. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. Sometimes it's like I made an Irish coffee and uh, I fucked up that Zoom meeting after for my job or whatever. So it doesn't always work, but oh, it just feels like I'm continuing the energy somehow. I think, I think we should all do that. I think we should all focus on the little things. You know, we yeah. lose that as we get older little things don't become so fresh and new and they just become monotonous. Yeah. But, you know, finding, you know, awe and wonder and little things like making a drink, you know, in, you know, just, I I can find pleasure in holding a paperclip and bending it in different ways and finding, you know, the little beauty in that. Um, or hopping on the you can subway. make a career for that on TikTok. Exactly. People, I've seen some paperclip fucking, uh, like post-it note creations and, there's a, there's a market for that. There's a, even it, you could keep it to yourself or you could film it in slow motion and, and get a couple million views on TikTok, mastering the art of forming paperclip creations. <laughs> could do anything on yeah. TikTok. Yeah. So um, I wanted to get into what you've been doing uh, for the past year or two years now, drumming for Chelsea Cutler. Mm-hmm. And you you've played sold out shows uh and it's wild that i haven't been to a chelsea cutler show yet that you've been drumming at i I definitely need to do it this upcoming tour that you guys have i uh, get my ass to a show no excuses but you you've played shows at red rocks you've played sold out shows at radio city Mm -hmm. um when i was out of the country or else that would have been like the fucking um in for the the show to see you rock out on stage. You, you played the Colbert show on national TV. Uh, and you, you keep the rhythm and you also breathe life into their performance with, with that massive energy. So, so, so my question to you, uh, or more of just an open-ended thing is, could you describe some of the moments on stage that have made you feel the most alive from the past tour? Like those moments, maybe like you even feel some of that mastery on stage for those specific moments. Are any, any ones that stand out to you where you're like, that was just fucking second to none that right there, that show, that solo, whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, there were a, uh, a bunch of moments on the last tour. It was the biggest tour I've ever played. It was Quinn 92, Chelsea Cutler, Ty Verdes, Massive Amphitheaters, Radio City Music Hall. Um, but the moment that sticks out the most to me was our first show back, which we played at Red Rocks, which was our, my first show back. 
after not playing for two years, you know, and we have a sold out show at Red Rocks and I was so excited and I do this thing where I jump over my drum kit. You know, you've yeah. seen the videos, you know, I've, I even here I jumped over a drum on the last 100%, podcast. 100%. Um, and I went to jump over my drum set like usual, but I was so excited. I had so much adrenaline flowing through me that when I got up on my stool, I usually take a second, you know, I put my arms in the air, I let everyone know I'm excited. But this time I just went for it and the stool fell over as I jumped and I totally like lost control in midair and I I kind of face planted, but then rolled out of it. So yeah. it looked really nice. Some people in the crowd that were at the way top of Red Rocks thought I did a front flip. And I got <laughs> messages being like, you landed the front flip. Amazing. That's awesome. But it was my first time falling on my face. Um, mm. So, you know, it, was, it taught me the lesson, you know, just, just get up again. Like, doesn't matter. Like, that, that's the, that's the best way to make a mistake is to, make a mistake upwards where other people think that you were trying something else <laughs> like oh shit like you, you you probably you know maybe there's so much adrenaline running through you that it doesn't even register in that moment but then thinking back after the show you're like oh shit i fell on my face and then you're getting all those messages that are like oh dude like that's i don't know if you're aware but that's the first time anyone's ever pulled off a front flip at red rocks <laughs> like that's historic and you're like yeah that's exactly what i was going for how did you know it's crazy and you're just you're just able to but I think I saw that video. Uh, I'm, I definitely saw that video actually because it was it was at Red Rocks. That that show and that feeling must have been insane to have that be the first public performance that you've done with yourself and with the whole team, going from zero to a hundred. Like literally, that that it's literally zero to a hundred. Yeah, like like how many people on the planet could say that they're first uh like first public thing or gathering was that one of the first public gatherings that you did in general after <laughs> covid was a fucking show at red rocks with <laughs> three thousand other people however many fucking people you can ten thousand ten thousand way off Fuck well it. actually i think it might be eight thousand i might have been over exaggerating that, but somewhere, that was somewhere people, there, yeah. yeah most people like i'm getting that adrenaline rush feeling when I'm going 18 months without seeing some of my friends. And then we go meet up in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm like, oh my God, it's crazy being in a restaurant with 30 other people. This is wild. And you're in, an, <laughs> you're in a fucking arena with 10,000 people at Red Rocks. That, that must have felt fucking insane. It was insane. And falling on my face in front of all those people was, uh, it wasn't as embarrassing as I thought, to be honest. Yeah. I, it was, it was funny. And, you know, it was a moment I'll never forget. Um, who could say that they've done that too? You know, that's, that's something that I'll tell my grandkids one day. Yeah. So this is something, this is something I've always wondered about iconic venues and, and obviously a venue like Red Rocks fits into that category where, you know, all the bands that have played there, you, you see them sign their names, their pictures and shit like that. Do you ever feel some sort of energy in the stadium or in the venue like Red Rocks, that's not from you. Like it's not from the crowd either, but you could feel the other people that have performed there, something that sticks to it a little bit. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I feel the energy in venues. I mean, it could be the own meaning I place on that venue, 
but I'm a big believer in energy mm. and, you know, the ener- feeling the energy from other people, from places. Like you walk down some streets and you're like, ooh, there's not a good feeling here. Or mm. you walk past someone in the street, someone random, and you get, you know, a weird feeling from a person or a really good feeling. You know, I've been around people or that, you know, that feel like a fireplace, a warm fireplace, and I just want to be around them and, it's the same with venues. You know, Red Rocks is definitely one of those special places. Radio City was one of those special places. Um, there's there's so many. Actually, you know, every venue, it, there's a spe- specific energy in it. And something I do every every time before we play a show, you know, I spend like the f- three hours leading up to the show in that venue looking at every single um different nook and cranny in the venue, really like feeling out the whole place. Like it's my home. Um, And I think that's a really big part of, you know, acclimating to the venue and like really feeling what it's like to be there. That's what I'm going to think about now. Whenever I pee in my bathroom or take a shit in my (laughs) bathroom and be like, damn, I've had some really fucking dope guests put their cheeks on this spot (laughs) right where I'm sitting right now in my own apartment. I feel the energy coming into me as I'm putting things back into the world. I feel their energy coming into me. And that is, you know, that's how you leave a mark on the world. You just, you shit in a bunch of different places and then you leave a little bit of energy and then people pick it up and that's how the the world goes around. Exactly. Um, you're, so, so you're getting ready to go back on tour with Chelsea Cutler pretty soon. Yeah, I've the, been getting ready for the past couple months now. That that starts in March? Yeah, I leave March 4th, uh, but tour doesn't start until the 11th, I think. March 11th. Yeah. So w- what has it been like to, to see yourself grow as an artist on tour and also see Chelsea Cutler and JT, another guy who plays a keyboard, you said, yeah to see Chelsea Cutler and also the whole crew around you grow as artists together. What has that journey been like touring the past couple of years? It's been quite the experience for myself personally. And as a group, you know, we are such a tight knit family. It's pretty much been the same people touring with us the past four years. I I can't believe it's been almost four years. Um, And, you know, you learn how to, behave almost on tour, um, how to pack differently. You know, every, every tour I'm thinking about what I need, what I don't need. Yeah. What does it learn to, to behave on tour? Cause when I think of tour, I think of misbehaving in an efficient way. Well, it, you know, it's, it's more of like where you're supposed to be, how to talk with certain people. Like you learn so many things so many things on tour, like what positions people are in, like what you say to certain mm-hmm. people, not like things you can't say, but how to efficiently communicate with the front of house, with, you know, the, the in-ear texts. Um, if something's broken, how to signal properly that I need help immediately versus yeah. this could wait a little longer. Like there's so many different forms of communication that are happening um, and how to be the most professional while also having a good time and letting everyone know I'm always there while also maintaining my own individuality. Um, Like when we first started touring, everything felt like a big group think, you know, everyone did the same things. 
Um, everyone was always doing the same activities, but as touring has gone on, you know, it's really nice to find your own pockets of time, do your own things, especially for me, who I'm, I'm also running my own business. Yeah. Um, making sure that I am doing all my uh, duties and responsibilities and finding my own time to do those things, not feeling guilty about it, which has been a big part. So be- being on tour, a lot of it is, it's growing with the group, but then also learning how to become your own person. Totally. Yeah. Kind of separate yourself as an individual, set those yeah. boundaries. Yeah. Set boundaries and also make sure I'm doing things for me. Like after, t- after the show, making sure that I am going and stretching and really internalizing the show rather than just immediately, you know, grabbing a beer and going and, and hanging out with everybody. Like mm. that's really important for me and something I need to do because I play so furiously. If I'm not stretching after shows, like I'm being in pretty bad shape. Last tour was a, a, it was like a really hard point for me where I, w- I was really physically hurt. Like my shoulder was hurting a lot. Um, my lower back was hurting a lot and I wasn't, putting in the time after shows to stretch. And so for this tour coming up, that's going to be a really big thing for me is making sure that, yes, I want to go hang out with everyone and celebrate the show, but I need to make sure I put in 30 minutes after to really, you know, stretch and internalize uh, what just happened. Yeah. Now, I I worry, and obviously it's different much different levels because a podcast is one-on-one and you play shows in front of hundreds and thousands of people. But, but I do, I do think about sometimes that I don't take the time to internalize the conversations that I record Mm -hmm. and to really think about what made it good, what could I have improved on and just stepping outside a critical perspective and just feeling it, whatever energy is left from that podcast. Sometimes I'll just go walk around. I'll listen to music, but there, there are times where I'll record an episode and I'll go right back into working or, or go somewhere else. And I feel like that buffer of just taking 20, 30 minutes of just sitting there thinking, well, fuck, like I just talked to Gavin Chops for two hours. That was a fucking blast the the you know the shit that we talked about you know after the podcast watching him do splits to stretch out on the <laughs> on the mat to demonstrate his pre-show routine and and post-show mobility like whatever whatever it was um I, I feel like it is important to take the time and feel what just happened especially in a world now that demands the content as soon as possible and demands the next thing yeah, I mean, reflection is important, whether in small spurts or, you know, most people reflect, you know, at the end of the year, you know, it's a big time to reflect on your year, think about what you want to do next year. But I think we all need to reflect daily, you know, really internalize moments. Because for me, time, time's weird. Time's a weird thing for me. Um, sometimes things feel really long. Sometimes things feel really short. Sometimes it feels one and the same. Sometimes time feels so thick. Like I don't know where it began and where it ended. And sometimes it's very rigid and I know exactly when something happened and when it ended. And everything makes so much more sense and has so much more uh, 
so much more value and emphasis mm-hmm. when I think about it a little bit, you know, when I really yeah. think about those moments and pull things out of it. That's interesting. So you, so you feel like you, you, the time that you're running on or the, the way that you perceive time or frame time changes based on the situation. Like sometimes it could be sticky. Other times it's more fluid. Yeah. Time, I don't understand it. And it's, it, I'm constantly struggling with time. I, it's, it's my biggest, it always feels just so, I mean, obviously it's intangible. Yeah. I just don't know how to interpret it a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wh- I'm trying to like, wh- what do you mean by, cause time is such a general thing. And when I hear struggling with time, my mind automatically goes to struggling to fit things in yeah, to the pre-range time. It. But it sounds like you're talking about struggling with the flow of time or like yeah, the, the, the yeah. uncertainty of it. Yeah, the uncertainty. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, no one does. Um, I mean, anxiety comes from thinking about the future and what's going to happen. And I was just talking with JT on the phone the other day. There's a specific flow of time on tour that I can't put a word to. And you just know when it starts happening. Because all of a sudden, you know, we're living these normal lives. We're not moving place to place. Right now, i am been in New York. I'm not really going anywhere. And all of a sudden, tour hits. And a weekend, I've been to, I've been to so many cities in a week. And then... I'm going to be on tour for two months this time. I'm going to be in so many different places. Mm. The flow of time when you're traveling that much, when you're performing every night, when you're seeing things, when you're on the outskirts of society, just looking in, it flows so strange. Yeah. And I lose track of where things are um, in terms of staying grounded with pack records for example it's really it's a really hard discipline and it's something i'm getting better at each time i go on tour but it's just feels so strange like the idea of a deadline or the idea of like oh this is a week from now i don't n- remember what a week feels like because a week on tour feels like a year compared to a week when I'm just in New York, it feels, it could, a week can feel like a second. Yeah. So it's just a weird grasp on time when I'm constantly in these very different states of life. So do you feel, so when you're playing a show, cause you said time, time can feel different on tours. So when you're actually playing a show and the lights come down and rehearsal's done, the, the songs are happening. You're in, you're in the flow of a show. How does time feel in those moments compared to you being able to tell the perception of time after a show or before the show? Like would, would, if someone told you that 15 minutes passed during a show, would you say, oh yeah, that sounds about right? Or would you say, I have no fucking idea if 15 minutes passed or that was 15 hours like that. that <laughs> it was just a portion of something that exists outside of what I'm doing. Because I'm just wondering if all the energy of people and music 
and spirits combining in a certain way, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of things or there's definitely a lot of things that we don't understand about the passage of time and the ways that certain elements in the universe combine to, to where it's certainly possible that if you have a pocket of something going on, like a concert or like a festival, maybe those people are actually experiencing time differently. It's not just, oh, that felt like that, you know, 48 hours at Lollapalooza felt like, you know, three, three hours total. Like maybe there was actually something there that was influencing how time is passing in those moments. Well, I mean, time flies when you're having fun, you know, and then time feels longer when you're in, in, in trouble or, you know, say a show will feel longer if my drums are, you know, something breaks and in this moment it feels longer, but usually a show feels pretty quick because it's so exciting and I'm having so much fun, but it's more the, how the show plays into the rest of the day or the week, you know, it's everything combined when you're on tour, the show just becomes, you know, a part of the day. Like for everyone else, it's this grand moment. You know, they're going to see their their favorite artist play and it's this big moment. It's like, oh, I'm going to the concert. Mm. But for me, it's just another part of my day. It is an amazing part of my day. It's a euphoric part of my day that it's awesome. I get to have something like that every day. Yeah. But it all kind of becomes one. And like on last tour, there was a three-day span where I didn't sleep for, I didn't sleep for oh, 72 shit. hours. And so like, that was really weird because just couldn't fall asleep or there's no time or there, we, we were on tour, but we also had fly out dates. So we played like a show. I don't remember what city we're in. And then immediately went from the show to the airport to fly to Michigan to play a festival. And then immediately after that show, hop back on a plane and to play another show, meet back up with the tour and play a show there. And so it was like a three-day span of constantly going to and from the airport and to and from different shows. And I'm so hyped up from adrenaline on the shows. I can't fall asleep. Doesn't matter if I take an edible or not. Like I'm just so hyped up. I want to do other things. Um, talking to my my homies, um, you know, listen to music. I'm I just don't sleep and it just feels like this one continuous day. Um, the, oh, yeah. The, yeah, the idea of a day just kind of disappears and I'm just on this three day span where I'm not even tired. Yeah. No, I, I, I have trouble falling asleep after doing three sets of push ups for a late night <laughs> workout. So I couldn't imagine playing a fucking show for 90 minutes and then having to fall asleep soon after that. It's cause yeah, literally it's, it's like a, a, you're doing a group workout with 5,000 other people and you have the most intense part of it on the drums, but people are also moving and shaking on stage in the audience. And it's like, all right, now 45 minutes after the show, you have to turn yourself off. And I'm sure it's like, how the, like, how the fuck am I supposed to just put my body into sleep mode after that? doesn't happen. I mean, especially like getting on a plane. Like I find airports really exciting. Most people hate airports. Like I love going to the airport for some reason. I love just being in an airport, you know, seeing all people from all over the place, hopping on a plane. I love being on a plane. It's like such me time. It's so personal for some reason. I just love it. And so the excitement of going from, you know, a show um, to then an airport to then a festival, which is a whole different environment than, you know, a normal show. And I'm seeing other artists play and, you know, I'm walking around festival grounds 
playing a festival set, hopping back on a plane, going to another show immediately. It's just like, it's too exciting. Um, And that's when time gets really jumbled. Yeah. I I wouldn't say that I love being at airports, but I I do enjoy watching TSA agents be extremely blunt to other people, including myself, where they're just like, dude, told you fucking take off your shoes eight times. And they're saying the same shit all day. And I don't know. It's a, sometimes uh, I don't know what it is. I'll look at someone and just be like, damn, I can't imagine how many times they have to do this day in and day out. And TSA agents at an airport, that's definitely a job where you have to say the same polite things over and over, but say it like you've said it the first time because those people are hearing it for the first time and you're like, damn, people are fucking stupid. But yeah, I mean, just have, you have to have empathy for those people. You know, I've, they are like, if they're, they're not mad at you, you know, they're, they got their own lives, their own things happening. And like, I wouldn't want to be doing that. So I'm sure. Depends how many miles you get. I would, I would, if it was some crazy amount of miles that you got as a TSA agent, working part-time, maybe, uh, maybe it'd be worth exploring, but it definitely, definitely would depend on benefits for sure. (laughs) Um, so you mentioned being in New York city Mm -hmm. and we both, We've both spent a lot of time about uh, around NYC. It, you grew up in Connecticut, yeah, and you you've lived in NYC for a while, and obviously you're away on tour f- for a good chunk of the year. But we've both seen the journey that NYC has taken through the pandemic, mm-hmm. and there are people that have opinions about N- New York uh, that don't. Some some of them live here and moved away. Some of them don't live here and are watching New York from afar. But there's been there's been a lot of think pieces about New York being dead and NYC never coming back. And here are the reasons why. And and similar to other cities like LA, Chicago, like cities are never going to be the same or they're never going to be as good. And when I see that, I think yeah, maybe LA and Chicago, but New York's definitely fucking coming back if it's not almost all the way back i i feel i feel like things are on the upswing so i wanted to ask you when you if if you come across comments like oh new york's dead it's it's never going to be the same what what are the thoughts that run through your mind having been in new york and living in new york and being around the city so much um i feel like i'm the wrong person to ask this cuz i've had a great time this whole time. Um, and cause I accept that things are always changing. Yeah. And I personally haven't been that affected by like, I don't understand what people mean. The city is dead. Um, I also can have fun just sitting in my apartment and I get creative like during like quarantine. Like I, you know, how to figure out, uh, different date ideas that would only happen in the apartment. So yeah. like, I had like, we did like an indoor camping night, you know, where we got like marshmallows and made s'mores and I took all the blankets and pillows off my bed and put them in, you know, my living room and we watched like movies and I set up a fake uh, fireplace on another computer screen. I like that. So it just got like creative and now it's like, it's become a, like a tradition. We did it again this year, even though we didn't have to. Um, 
I, this city is not dead. It's so alive. Um, I don't like, I don't understand what that means. I think it's a very like weird mindset and people are like, Oh, like it's like the same idea as like, Oh, the good old days. Like, yeah. like I never understood that or it's just never, that's not a part of who I am. I see the the beauty in, in everything and I've had, I've had so much fun. Like I, I really can't complain and I don't, I don't take any comments like that to heart. Yeah. No, I mean the, the city, the city's definitely changing and it's always changing and, and the pandemic kickstarted that in a lot of ways. I think people that didn't really enjoy the city or maybe were sticking around here just because their job was here mm-hmm. had now, now didn't have that tie to the city. So if you wanted to keep your job in New York and then your job went remote and you wanted to move to Montana or LA, wherever, you now have that freedom. And, and I completely understand that, but the, I feel like the, as uh, as there's a horn in the background t- <laughs> telling me how alive the city is, I, I feel, I don't know, I, I haven't felt a difference in the, now that things are starting to come back, I feel a similar energy to New York that I've seen and that I've felt before the pandemic started, which is, you know, New York's not the most warm city. People are hustling people, you know, everyone's doing three things. Uh, you know, it, it can be rude if you're not used to the the city timing and like everything needs to be like, where's my bagel? Where's my coffee? Like getting on the subway, putting up your finger, getting into a taxi, like doing everything in flow. Like there's a movement to the city. And I that definitely dropped a little bit during the pandemic because you can't have that when people aren't walking the streets. But I do feel now when I walk around Brooklyn and, and I go into the city, I do feel a similar vibe that maybe will come back in a different way, but but I I, I do believe it will come back just as strong. Just it just won't yeah. be the same because nothing is the same. I think it's even more wild now. Like, I, do you remember the summer, like when but the the riots and protests? Well, well, no, I'm saying this past this past this past summer, summer yeah, yeah. Like when there was pretty much zero restrictions, like all COVID things were off, bars were reopening, clubs were reopening. When I would go out, it kind of felt like no one's been out before. And this was everyone's first time yeah. out. And everyone was just looking for the best time they could possibly have. Everyone's walking around the streets. Everyone's excited. It felt like such a, like a young energy. Like everyone was getting out of the house for the first time. Yeah, like you're, you're a, yeah, like you're a hangover baby. You've never had a hangover before. You don't, you don't know, you don't know how to hang out and, and get drunk and, and go to bars. It's like you remember, it's like you're learning how to ride a bike again yeah. almost, but you're fucking drinking and getting wild while you're doing it. Yeah, it was, and it's, you put it, you had the training wheels on for a little bit doing Zoom happy hours <laughs> and, and getting together with your friends at your apartment and then you rip off the training wheels and you just get after it with 50 people in a bar and you're like, holy fuck, what the hell is this? Yeah, it was, it's a, it was a crazy experience. Um, like going to the bar again and like remembering, oh, I have to put like my card out to get this the bartender's attention. Like yeah. all these like little 
nuances about being in a bar. You, I totally forgot what that was like. Dude, I, f- I feel like I, I was getting pretty good at getting in a stance that could attract the bartender's attention before the pandemic started. I was just like, you get, yeah. you get one arm on the table, casually hold out your card. You find a good corner where you could oversee, <laughs> like the, where the bartender goes to make most of the drinks, that's the eye line of sight that you want to be in. So you're just like, you're standing there and you're just like, yeah, what's up, buddy? I see you. <laughs> and then as soon as things went back to normal, I'm waiting at the bar. I'm just like, I don't know. Like th- this feels like I've never done a, a pull-up before. Like I'm trying to remember the muscle memory of getting drunk. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I mean, I've come to terms that I don't even like going like to bars that often anymore. Like that's, that's a, that was a super new thing for me. Just being in those situations mm-hmm. again, being surrounded by people in a bar. I just like, this is not really for me. Like I don't, yeah. I, I like, I really enjoy like parts of the, of the pandemic where, you know, there's a lot more just sitting around and having conversations. Um, when, you know, when I saw my friends, you know, for the first time after a while, you know, when we would go for like, when we meet up for like a hike after not seeing each other for like months, just those moments were so much more fulfilling than, you know, going, going to a bar. And yeah. now it's like, I only, I don't really go out in that kind of way as often anymore because I don't, I don't need to be like sardined in a bar anymore. Mm. Um, yeah. It doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. It's like the bar before the pandemic, the bar was the default hang out. If you didn't know what you're going to do, you gather up people and you, you slide into the bar. That's the thing that's always there. But now when bars are closed for 18 months and you've been doing other things, like you go hang out at Prospect Park or you go rock climbing outside, like going drinking on rooftops that are private, but you can get up there somehow, you know, make, make it work. There are all these other options that come into play that you didn't realize were there, but then when things get shut down, those opportunities present themselves. And then when you have the opportunity, like I, I feel the same way. When I go to a bar, it's not, it's not just uh, this is the one that I came across because it's two blocks away from where I met my friend. I'm going to this bar with purpose, with with more purpose now because I like something about it, or my friend yeah. likes something about it, or it's quiet enough to mm-hmm. talk. It's more of a lounge, you know. They have fucking, you can throw axes or whatever, like some, <laughs> some, some, something about, uh, which I don't know how that's legal, by the way. I've done it and it's such a good time. But to get people drunk and have them throw axes, it's, it's a miracle that uh, more people don't get their heads chopped off. But it's, it's, a, it's a great time. But, th- but things like that, those options didn't seem like options. And then the pandemic kind of like pulls the rug out from underneath everything. But then when the rug gets pulled out, things get jostled around and you pick up shit and you're like, oh shit, like I forgot I had this thing. Mm-hmm. Or I, you know, I forgot this was even here. You you brush off the dust and you, and you find some new shit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just, just made you think about what you prioritize and what matters to yeah. you. And I think there's a time and place to go out and party, but... I don't need to do it every weekend anymore. Like yeah. there's so many things that fulfill me. Did did the pandemic help you realign your friends groups in any way? Like make things more clear or more 
strong where connections needed to be strong and then in other ways you kind of just cut ties um i have a pretty solid friend group um they're like my family at this point i've been friends with a lot of the same people for you know 20 years now and you know they all live here in new york most of them actually not everyone and I mean, it just made me want to hang out with those people more rather than constantly like trying to expand my network. I, you know, want to focus inward more on what I already have. You know, I have these beautiful relationships. I realized I don't need so many, so many close friends. Like, I don't need to make friends with everyone. I really love the people that are in my life yeah. right now. And I trust all these people. And you know, trust is earned in small moments over long periods of time. So all these people in my life right now have like earned that and I and I feel so close with them. The pandemic obviously made it hard to see them all the time. Mm -hmm. But when I did see them, you know, it was that much more meaningful. Yeah, yeah I I was lucky that I I had a, a pretty close friend group before the pandemic and some something that happened in terms of I, I guess you could call it realigning is I realized how often I needed to talk to certain friends to keep that relationship meaningful mm -hmm. before the pandemic I would have my routine of you know every two weeks or every month, you know, I'm going to send out a group text and whoever's around will go fired up. But I learned that there's some friends that we could not see each other for six months and we get back together and things are totally fine. And neither, neither one of us feels hurt. And there are other friends where maybe I can go six months and they feel hurt by not getting together six months uh, or other way around. Like, I'm just like, yo, what the fuck? Like, you haven't texted me in six months, but they're like, dude, I was fine. Like I, I felt like six months was a good time. So my friend group has stayed the same mostly, but I, I have a much better idea, like an internal uh, friend clock of, okay, this is, this is going to be the best for this particular relationship right here. But that also doesn't apply to these other friends. Like maybe the, uh, these other friends, we have a different dynamic going on, but you know, this guy, uh, we're going to hop on the phone once a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, friends were definitely very important during the pandemic. Yeah. So there is, there's a, there's a freestyle skier mm -hmm. named Eileen Gu from China. She's, she's currently competing in the Beijing Olympics right now. And she wrote an opinion piece about fear in the New York times and the through line, the, the through line, uh, thesis for what she was saying is that she's in love with the fear. The, the quote that she said is I'm in love with fear. And then I'm paraphrasing the rest. Cause I don't remember the exact words, but she's saying like, it's fear to her can be like a relationship where mm -hmm you need to make sometimes you, you need to make compromises and you need to realize that it's not always going to be a one-way thing where you, you're constantly uh being treated 
you know, like you're, you're constantly just completely in love. There, there's going to be up moments and down moments with a person, just like there are up moments and down moments with fear. And she's in love with fear. So I wanted to know as a live performer and as a drummer, do you feel, would you say that you're in love with fear? And if so, is there a sort of up and down dynamic to fear to going on stage or fear of performing akin to a relationship? Um, I would say my relationship with fear is also love. Uh, fear is its own thing and it's how you react to fear. You can get sucked down with the fear and you can let it drown you or you can have the courage to do what you want to do and combat the fear. Not necessarily combat, but accept the fear and do it anyway. You know, that's, that's, that's courage. Um, when it comes to performing, I don't really have any fear. I've, n- I've never have. It's, that's a, a very exciting thing for me, getting on stage in front of people since, since I was very young. Is there, is there any part of that excitement that leaks over into nervousness or fear before? Or does all of that energy register as excitement before the performance? It's all excitement. I'm, I have zero fear of getting in front of people and, and playing and doing yeah. it. And that's just like, that's where, like, I remember playing for the first time, you know, with Chelsea for a big audience and being like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, I feel so much better uh, and stronger being vulnerable on stage than in so many other places in my life. Yeah. Um, and combating that fear in other places of my life uh, or accepting it and having the courage to, you know, do and act as I want to. Um, that's where I'm still learning, you know, and that re- relationship with fear is, uh, you know, it's, it's up and down. And I think I've become a lot stronger expressing how I really feel in moments, whether it's with my partner, whether it's with my business partners, whether it's with friends, um, even strangers, being comfortable to express how I truly feel rather than putting on a facade of what is one wants of something that wants to be heard of, you know, say if someone's expecting a certain answer and I'm not mm. necessarily feeling that way, that's somewhere where, you know, I've been uh, grappling with fear. Is So you said the, the lack of fear that happens to you before you go on stage, that's something that was in you as long as you can remember. That's not something that developed over time. It was instant. My first performance was the best day of my life, you know. That's fucking wild. I <laughs> I I want to I, I I would love to get to a place where all of the energy in my body before a podcast registers as excitement or registers as positive. I think it started as 50-50 for me, where mm-hmm. it's 50% excitement, 50% nervousness. And 
they're literally battling for which energy is going to take over as the podcast is starting. And now I feel like it's more 80, 20, 90, 10 in terms of excitement and nervousness, but it's, it's definitely, that's why I think it's fascinating that you've always had it because it's something that I see in myself and also in other people like yourself, that, that energy and hearing you talk about it, a place where I would like to experience because I don't, sometimes I don't like how I treat other people right before a podcast because I'll be so inside my own head that mm-hmm. I'm not actually, you know, I'm, I, I know I have a podcast in an hour and I'll do all these things to get present before the podcast, but I don't actually feel present before the podcast. I feel present for the podcast, but before I'm just like, people are talking to me and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they could have just said, can I have all your Bitcoin? Can I steal all your shit? And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like not actually listening to what the fuck they're saying. Um, and then I have had flashes of, of it being close to 100% excitement before a podcast where I'm just like very present, very excited. I'm here with you even though I haven't done the performance yet, that I still have the expectation of performing, but it's not, it hasn't happened yet. I, I would I would like to get to a place where I can be more present before the performance, if that, if that makes sense. That's, that's something that I'm working on. Well, I mean, what does that, what does that mean? You know, like what, like what is the fear, you know? And like, what does it mean to be present in that moment? It means, it doesn't mean to push away the the feeling, I just think that's a part of me, whatever, whether it's nervousness or it's an, another form of energy that I, I don't have a word for, or I'm just throwing it in the bucket of nervousness, but maybe it's another form of excitement that I just haven't realized yet. For me, it's setting, like being set up for a podcast that's about to happen in an hour and then someone needing me to be present for a conversation and not pacing around or acting like I'm hearing or just kind of like pushing them away as much as possible. Cause I let the, I, I fucking love podcasting so much, but I let, sometimes I, I make it too uh, important in my mind where I feel like because I have an upcoming performance in the future that I can somehow take away, it's okay to take away the present a little bit for myself and others now, because I'm going to put it into the present and the future. Mm-hmm. Almost like a, now that I'm talking about it, it almost feels like drinking where you, you, th- that saying where drinking is like taking happiness from the next day because hmm. then you're hung over because you can't experience, you, you can't feel joy in the same way the next day. You can't feel peace in the same way the next day because you're brain chemistry is literally, it's different and you're not going to hit the same levels on that meter. I feel similarly in podcasting where I almost have this buffered sort of energy before and I don't let myself get to like a certain level of excitement or presence. But then once the podcast is on and I'm rolling, I'm just like, this is why I capped myself before so I can fucking be the man now. But I don't think it has to be like that. I think every time you get on a podcast, you will always be on and you will always be there. So I think that is a good moment of where you can be kinder to yourself and be okay that, you know, you're, you're feeling that way before a podcast. Mm. Um, 
I know it's easier said than done, you know, because when I ha- I have similar moments in my life where I, you know, I'm feeling worked up and anxious, and those are the moments that I'm trying to, you know, be kinder to myself and allow allow it to happen. Yeah. That would that would be one of the, I feel like one of those moments because I feel like no matter what, once the mics are on and you're recording, something's you, gonna come out. You're always yeah. gonna be good. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's there's gonna be an issue. Yeah, no, I a way that I've tried to think about it is something something very similar to that where the actual work is done long before the podcast, the week leading up to it, the, the thing that feels like the hard work, which is the, the research preparation coming up with topics, questions, whatever. like that is, mm-hmm. that is when you lock in and do the work. And then once you start recording, that is a celebration. And so it doesn't make sense to be like, no one gets wound up before a celebration, like a celebration, <laughs> celebration, pe- people say the, the most excited that you'll be on vacation is the the expectation of the vacation that like you're just so excited leading up to it because the vacation is a celebration so i try i try to think of it a little more like that where i'm like if i if i say the podcast is a celebration why am i making myself tense before like the, this doesn't make sense if someone was about to throw me a party like i'd be getting fucking lit and excited right now <laughs> I, I wouldn't be like pacing back and forth in my apartment being like i hope i don't fuck this up like let's get it together you just gotta do the best you can yeah you know that's that's really what it yeah. is let's uh let's get into pack records okay because okay that that has been a huge part of your life and i i want to start this portion of the conversation by reading uh, a section from the about page mm-hmm. of pack records. Cause it's, I, I think it's beautifully written. So pack records is an independent record label and an artist partnership company focused on creative, or, excuse me, focused on creating immersive worlds around each artist. It's inspired by the melting pot of New York city. And our roster is diverse in sound story and style. While you can expect something new and different from each project, it's the incredible music that ties the pack together. So can you, can you tell me the story of how pack records came together and how, like how, how uh, the idea became something that you started working on with other people and then pack records became this tangible asset which is the the label and the management company totally so pack records came into my life right when the pandemic hit um it's the same guys i'm working my same business partners from the management from pack management and so we've been working together for we now work for together for six years and on the management side of things, before the label even existed, we were acting as the label for our artists. We were doing everything independently. We were just running all of our projects through a distributor rather than going through a label. And we were coming up with the marketing plans. We were setting up the campaigns. We were doing all the creative work. Um, well, not obviously with the artists, mm. you know, and we were, our goal is always to execute the vision of the artists and bring that to life. So finding the right directors, finding the right photographers, making sure the narrative is written well and connecting with great PR people, um, reaching out to our own networks. And so we were, we were a label, you know, we were a label without being a label and mm. we were able to grow our catalog 
to it's now about half a billion streams and we did that independently. It's fucking insane. Congrats, by the Thank way. You. Thank That's you. Awesome. It's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. And for a while, this was a side project for me and my two other business partners. Um, we were, you know, I, I was, I was, I'm still playing with Chelsea Cutler, but before even that, I was working all kinds of odd jobs just to get this off the ground. Um, and in about summer of 2019, we got an offer from a company that they wanted to invest in us to start a label because of everything we've done. And it's always been a goal of mine to have a label to be, to be able to go out and find really amazing artists and help them develop into, you know, something that they've always dreamed of. That's always been a goal of mine and similar, similar with my partners. And we weren't even thinking of that at the time. And once we got this offer, we offer, we were like, wow, maybe we should start a record label. And so we put together, you know, decks and kind of graphs to show mm -hmm. our growth and where we could possibly be in the future. And we sent that out to a bunch of possible in investors. And The Orchard, which is a part of Sony, they came on board and, and now they're, uh, they were an investment partner for us. And they helped us really get a label off the ground. And we signed a deal with them, you know, in March of 2020, literally the week everything got shut yeah. down. Um, is that was that a good thing to get it all to get it done before the pandemic? Because I feel like a lot of businesses went into saving mode right after that, where they're like, "We don't know what's going to happen." It was a blessing that we signed the deal and we did. I don't know what would have happened otherwise. Um, and yeah, it was a you know it was a blessing and a curse to start. Then it was really great because I obviously wasn't touring at that moment, mm. and so I could put my full attention into this project. Um, and you know, we, we did our first release June of 2020. So that we, you know, we built, we built out the branding, we figured out the name of everything, um, what our mission is. And was that the, the release of pack records or was it the first artist released or a combination? Kind of a combination. Okay. You know, we did our first release with the announcement of the label, um, in June, 2020, mm. or it could have been the end of May. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, like right, like a couple months into the pandemic. Yeah. And it's been, it's the, been really exciting. Yeah. So for, for listeners, and this is also, um, for myself too, uh, you have pack records, but you also have pack management. Yeah. Could you differentiate how, what the, what the label does and what the, the management side does? Cause I want to ask you a few questions about, uh, pack records and pack management. So it'll be easier for people to know totally. and, and for myself too, to know how that's split up before we continue. So in brief, pack management, the clients we work with on that side are people and art and artists that we, you know, it's the idea that we're going to be working together for forever. You know, we want to be working together on developing the artist's career from zero to, you know, being a very big artist. We aren't necessarily like some of our, our management clients are on the label as well. And so we are funding, you know, our management clients 
from the label side, mm-hmm. which is, you know, one of the reasons why we also wanted to start a label so we can, you know, work with the artists on our management and give them the budgets that they deserve or we feel like they deserve rather than, you know, pitching them to another label that doesn't want to give, you know, a certain budget or help in the same way. So so everything is, is in-house, the, mm-hmm. the management and then the label end is... is uh is that more of the the distribution aspect of the the, the label? So yeah, labels more it deals with with the record side records, of things. Okay. So um, we like I said, we've signed some of our management clients, yeah. but it also has given us the ability to go out and work with other teams okay. and new artists, um, which has been really fun. You know, it's it's been really cool being on the label side of things you know, working with different managers, working with artists, and it's more on like a project to project basis. You know, we sign an artist for an EP, maybe two EPs, maybe an EP and an album. So it's only for a certain period of time. Mm. And there are cases where it goes beyond that, where after, you know, the releases are over and our contract's up, we had such a great working relationship, we want to keep going. So we we sign, you know, another album okay. or another EP. And that's the label side. It's more mm-hmm. of a project by project basis. Yeah. And then the management is more for life. Yeah. It's more for life. It's every day. You know, it's yeah. like we talk with our clients every day from, you know, the littlest things of setting up, you know, a new profile on some new social media channel yeah. or, you know, it's, it's everything. Management, you're dealing with the day in, day out, you know, in super in the weeds. But we also look at our label like that too, because we come from a management background. We kind of take that approach and put it into our label. So what, you know, when I pitch to new teams and new artists, I'm telling them we're doing more than what a normal label does. We're not just putting your records out and hoping for the best. We want to be a partner. That's why I say artist partnership, because we want to help fill the gaps wherever they need to be filled. If you're looking for an agent, we want to be able to introduce you to those people. If you're if you're trying to start a live show and you've never played live, like I have a lot of experience in that. I want to help you, you know, whether you need a band, whether what equipment that you need, um, helping set up the flow of the show, you know, whatever is needed there on creative side, helping with every part of the creative, wherever the artist needs help on, on our label, we want to be a part of that because we're working mostly with developing artists. And yeah. in order for a developing artist to succeed, you know, you need to help fill in every single gap. You can't just put out the music and hope for the best. So the, uh, whether it's on the label or the management side, there is a crafting that goes on with the creative vision. It mm-hmm. sounds like more on the management side, but you also offer it on the label side too. Like you'll help with creative decisions and, and things that are in that realm. I'd say it's both, you know, yeah. and on the label side, sometimes the artists, they won't want our involvement in the creative, but when like we like to get really in the weeds in the creative, we love, you know, like, like, like you said, you know, we build worlds for the artists. Yeah. If you look at every artist on our label roster, you know, there's like I like it, our description says the sounds are all very different. The genres mm-hmm. are very different, but the worlds feel very cohesive. Each artist lives in their own world fully, and the visuals, the music, the narrative, everything expresses the vision of the artist. Yeah, you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read off some of the the artists that you have. This is both label and management, mm-hmm. and so you have artists like Godford. Uh, Blood Cultures, who I was just listening to today, Carr, Will Hyde, Disco Lines, and 
you you obviously you have a connection to all the artists, of course. Mm-hmm. But is there one is there one artist project that you could highlight that is a part of Pack Records and highlight that specific creative journey just to give people a taste of how you help craft that uh, immersive world? Um, totally. Um, let me think. What I mean, the really great one is Godford. Uh, we found Godford really early on in the earliest parts of their career. And we came on board and kind of, we, they saw that we understood what they were looking for in terms of the creative vision because it is an anonymous project mm-hmm. too. We have experience with that working with blood cultures, which is yeah. also an anonymous project. And so there's a lot more craft and detail that's in, that goes into that because it's not centered around a person. It's centered around an idea. And the idea for Godford was the tie between romance and rave. And what does that feel and what does that look like? And I, so, I like that. R- romance and rave. Mm-hmm. Get wild and fall in love. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that, yeah. And... You know, so if you look, if you watch all of the music videos, um, they're, they're very, we, we feel that we did a really good job with Godford, um, presenting this idea of romance and rave and the music videos are, they're usually, you know, there's a, a couple involved, um, they're dancing, um, and because, you know, a lot of this was during quarantine, they, you know, they're usually, it's just them together. Or, you know, there's one music video where it's different people in their rooms, you know, dancing alone, mm. you know, and that's a very romantic experience too, you know, dancing by yourself in your room. I'd say that's a very romantic experience with, with yourself. You know, if you're able to, you know, be free and dance in your room and, you know, it's a, a time when we're all just connected over the internet, we're all listening to the same, we can listen to the same songs, but we, you know, we dance, we dance alone. And, you know, dancing can be very freeing by yourself. Do you, do you have, uh, you mentioned romance and rave. Do, do you have a through line tied to each artist that's a phrase or, or some sort of idea to go back to? So everything seems focused like romance and rave. I love that. And that's, that's for Godford. Do you have other symbols or phrases for blood cultures or will hide? Like how, how do you kind of develop those through lines, but then help the artists maintain the, the consistency? It's really, it really helps when you have a line like that, like for Alden, you know, his, uh, which is a, another artist that we worked with like very early on, you know, we worked on the first EP. Um, now he's doing very well. You know, he's a touring of glaive at the moment. Yeah. Uh, his, you know, his followers are are crazy. You know, he's got a really tight knit fan base, and it's really awesome to see. Um, but for that project, it was called Greenhouse. Um, so everything, obviously, we wanted to be green. Yeah. Um, and a greenhouse is a place where plants are nurtured, um, and they grow from being a seed and becoming, you know, a real plant. And that was the same for, you know, the greenhouse was also you know, it depicted his mind and different thoughts and every, you know, instead of plants, each song was, you know, a seed 
of a thought and it grew, you know, from there. So that was, you know, the kind of through line for that project. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to do, but unfortunately because of, you know, the, uh, the quarantine, we wanted to do a cool pop-up event in a greenhouse and, you know, it, it kind of was Alden's mind in the greenhouse rather than, you know, but we also have plants in there too, but. Yeah. Dude, that'd be sick. I mean, I feel like music, music and plants and music and nature go hand in hand. And, and mm-hmm. when I, whenever I've been listening to music, whether it's at a festival or I'm by myself, but I'm surrounded by nature, there's, there's, a there's this extra aspect, almost like what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, that spiritual aspect, when you combine thousands of people in one venue, I feel like there's also nature as the third party, just even walking through Prospect Park as opposed to walking down the street with mostly buildings. You you walk into a, a park in the city with trees, even though you're surrounded by cement, there's still a little bit of a different feeling and, mm-hmm. and vibe to the music because you're surrounded by nature. So I I think that's dope. Like the the greenhouse music, the, the greenhouse uh, combination with debuting something or releasing a new track into the world that that would be that's fucking dope thank you yeah it's it's a it's a fun process the the creative process i i you know that's that's my focus at the company i do i help a lot with the creative and the same way how you know i also had the a and r and finding the artists a lot of creativity i'm finding is also having good curation yeah so being able to pair an artist with, you know, a director that is going to emit the same vibes as the music does is just as much a sk- creative skill, you know, being able to find the right people. So I'm discovering about myself that, you know, beyond finding really great music, I'm applying that to other areas where it's finding a photographer that would really fit an artist or a videographer that would really fit an artist. Yeah. Um, it's all, you know, um, curation has become a big part of my life. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so helpful to have that sort of creative guidance and a creative outlet. And, um, you know, so some people might say podcasting is an art. I don't see it as an art. It's more just like, I don't know maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but we both know Manoa, Manoa Rain, and he's been a huge creative inspiration and also has helped guide me, even though he's out in LA right now, mm-hmm. I'm in New York. Like he's still, he's still on me about doing certain things with reels or, or presenting the information in a certain through line. And then I've also worked with a marketing agency called Studio Shown that's based in Luxembourg and, and just kind of like collabing on ideas and getting outside of my own world and seeing how other people perceive what Augzoro is or what a certain podcast is could really help. Because sometimes I feel like I I get so wrapped up in a single episode or a single project where it's hard to see how someone else is going to experience it. Where I'm, I don't feel like I'm maybe for an episode. I'm not really connecting on. You know, this is the clip that's going to really shine Mm -hmm. on social media or these are the colors I need to use, or this is how I'm going to present it. So what you're doing with pack records and being 
someone who can uh, not just be a creative guide and uh, help craft ideas, but to actually have the experience performing, you know, you're, you're not going to get a lot of people much better than yourself that are able to actually say, like, I can help you build this shit. Well, yeah, it's not just me. You know, there's a lot of people involved and I'm, I'm just grateful to be a part you know, of these artist projects and especially working with my team at Pack Records or I should yeah. say our team, you know, we, we're, there's no, there's no leader, you know, it's just, it's all of us, you know, we're a small team. It's me, my two business partners. We are involved on every single project that we do. We're only, we're only signing about, you know, five to six mm. projects a year so we can really preserve the quality of each project. We're not, you know, signing a million different things and just hoping for the best. We're really getting in the weeds with each artist that we sign and each artist that we sign is super intentional. Um, so I'm grateful to, you know, be a part of this with them and to be working with all the artists that we do. There's a line in Phospholipid by Blood Cultures mm -hmm. that goes, don't give me away, don't lead me astray the way you play your games. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the most effective ways that you've learned to play games in the music industry outside of just the music? And, and I mean that in a positive way, like mm -hmm. learning to learning to play the music industry as it is a game to be played like any other industry? Um, I mean, for me, it's to not play the game at all. Um, I don't like positive or negative. I don't like the idea of games. I, I have stuck to the motto of, of being myself mm. and being truthful with how we, we work. And even, you know, I, I think that's a value for my whole team. Um, humility and honesty, transparency has been a big part of, you know, what we do. You know, we have a retreat every year where, where we all look at the values that we want our company to represent. And, you know, not playing games with people is part of that. Um, and I think that's how I connect with other people in the music industry is because I've, I've had people play games with me. You know, I've, I've been, the, the music industry is not a fun place sometimes. Yeah. And I hate those games. And I felt, you know, even getting into the music industry, I felt that's where the mo like a lot of the games were. And then also like when you have an artist that is starting to really grow and bubble you know, that's when the games get really serious and it gets super political. And I don't like that. That's not why I got in the music industry. Yeah. So especially when I'm talking to new artists, you know, it's more, it's even an educational thing. You know, it's more than just talking to the artists. It's providing a, a, a place where they can feel like they can, they can trust, you mm. know, and trust is built in those small moments. So I'm constantly build trying to build these relationships with new artists even if we never work together you know just being a, a person and same with each member of my team being people that artists can come to when they don't know you know they don't they, they don't know what to do or they have questions yeah. about certain contracts certain ways things are supposed to be we don't want to play those games i'm not hiding anything i'm not gatekeeping I want to be as real as possible and help as much as I can. So removing removing yourself from the games essentially has allowed you to 
play the game at a better level. Not even playing the game, but just exist within an industry, removing yourself from certain pressures that other people feel deserve attention. And you found a way to pressure the things that you want to pressure without caving into some of the mainstream pressures. Like people would tell you, oh, you have to pay attention to this or you make sure like this is good. And you know, you're just like, bro, no, that doesn't yeah. like, that doesn't play those matter. games. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I don't, I don't look at an artist that is like, it's like, oh my God, like, look at this artist. They're blowing up on TikTok. Like, look at it. Like, look at this, this artist stats. They have such a, like, if I don't feel the music, like, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I don't, I don't care. I'm not playing games. I, I, like, I, I want to work with artists that I want to work with. I'm not, I don't. And yes, obviously those things are important, but I'm not going to just go for an artist because yeah. like, they're playing the game correctly. Like I want to, want to feel that it's yeah. it's authentic. Yeah, there's um, I, I feel like it's a weird time with TikTok too because everything is so instant and everything is is immediate. Where you know, if a song blows up on TikTok with a sixty second clip, you want to get that song out there as soon as possible. And there's like all these things that go into it that I, I don't I don't understand. Uh, completely just one, not making music, but two, not being inside that particular industry to, to feel like what it means for something to blow up on TikTok or to see it from an analytical, uh, analytical side. And I, so take this with a grain of salt because I, I can't confirm uh, whether this is 100% accurate, but I have heard people in the music industry discuss on podcasts the fact that Lil Nas X does incredibly well on TikTok and obviously his streams are out of control on Spotify, but people say that he may have trouble moving 4,000 tickets in a single market, like by himself headlining a show. And he has 50 million streams a month on Spotify however many billion streams on TikTok, but may have trouble moving a few thousand tickets in like a market like Chicago, New York City, LA. But then you also have artists like Odessa or Rufus Dussault that have 5 million streams a month at their peak on Spotify and really don't fuck with TikTok. And they'll sell out Red Rocks in three nights like that or Mm -hmm. play a theater in Chicago, which is where I saw Odessa in 2017. And I don't, I don't mean that negatively in, in, towards artists that blow up on TikTok. You know, on, honestly, there's probably a little jealousy that goes into that with me being like, fuck, like, I wish uh, I could manufacture that somehow with podcasting. So like, I, I, I respect the way that artists can use TikTok and leverage TikTok to make their music blow up because you need all the tools that you can as an independent artist. But there is something to be said about the connection that an artist has to their fans and not just fans in terms of quantity, like you have X number of streams per month, but how deeply your music sinks your hooks into your fans. Cause maybe, maybe you have 10 million streams a month on Spotify, but your fans are like just hanging on. Like they're not really attached to you. They're just attached to maybe the playlist they streamed you on, but they're not willing to pull the trigger and pay 60 bucks to see you on a live show. And then maybe you have a million streams per month, 
but like your hooks are fucking like deep into your fans and they're like, I'll drive six hours to fucking see you play two shows. I'll stay for the entire weekend. And I feel like artists, um, like, like Chelsea Cutler definitely has that vibe. Mm-hmm. I love Chelsea Cutler's music. She has extremely passionate fans. I get that vibe from Odessa, Rufus mm-hmm. Dussault, who I also love. And, and to me, it, it's, it's interesting, but it's also weird because there's no metric, uh, at least not that I've seen, to measure the, the, how deeply, like how much is a fan willing to sacrifice to see you play live? That's, that to me is the most important metric that yeah. doesn't really get talked about as much. Yeah, uh, Spotify streams don't convert the fans. Like that's just, you can, ha- you can be a really great streaming artist and that, that that doesn't really mean anything when you go to play shows. Like I, you know, we've worked with artists that do incredibly well streaming, but you know they couldn't sell out a 250 person room. Um, you need, as an artist, you need to be like s- streaming is not a strategy; yeah. it's part of a strategy. You need to, you know, give your fans more value. You know, it's like what value are you bringing to your fans? Like for example, an artist that we work with, Blood Cultures, even though they're anonymous, they bring so much value to their fans. So much mm. value. And it, it might not look like crazy numbers. Their streaming might not be the craziest you've ever seen. Their Instagram following might not be the cra- craziest you've ever seen. But each one of those fans will go to a show, will buy the merch. Mm. Because what Blood Cultures is doing as an artist is so intentional and goes beyond that. Yeah. You know, the world that Blood Cultures has built around the project is insanely deep, insanely thoughtful, and it's really fun for the fans to be involved. Yeah. Um, I have so many artist friends that come to me and be like, why aren't the Spotify editors paying attention to me? Why... Uh, like is the industry like they don't care about my my music blah blah they posted me here my last release I'm not getting any love this release and what I tell them is that you can't be focused on the industry you can't be focused even on what I think about your music like you got to focus on your fans even if you have one fan like talk to that one fan Mm -hmm. because that fan is gonna go and tell his or her friends about your music because you talked to them and you made them feel validated. You know, yeah. It's about being, creating a community. Um, it's not about, you know, what the industry thinks of you because if you have a, a crazy fan base, you're, you're going, the, the industry is going to pay attention no matter what. Yeah. And so it's about building a community more than going for streams. And that's great if you're streaming, that, that helps. You know, it's really great if you have this moment on TikTok, that's all really great, but it's how you, you know, you, you, you react to that, you know, yeah. react to that, uh, and you know, make it last longer. Yeah, no, I've, I've started to, I've started to think about that more, especially during the pandemic, spending a lot of time alone in my apartment, thinking about which fans, which music, which music artists I'm, an ultimate fan of in the sense that their hooks are deep in me to the point where I'm going to fucking fly to go see this person play on stage. You know, I don't care if I have to drop 400 bucks with a ticket and, 
hotel, whatever for the weekend. I, I've started to think about that when I listen to people and it, like you said, if you have one fan that's like that, I would rather have one fan that feels like maybe, you know, they're in Boston, but they would come to a live podcast in New York or, you know, even if they're in New York, they would still come to a show that's close by to even spend the money with, uh, to see something that I do is such a fucking, uh, honor and a, and a huge, uh, commitment on their end and, and an inspiration. And, and I totally agree that it's, it's much better to have a thousand of those type of fans than a million fans that are not really connected to your music. Not, I mean, I would take it like if, yeah. if a million, like <laughs> obviously like a million people that fucking, you know, maybe they found my podcast on a playlist or something and they're just like, I don't really like your podcast, but we like this episode and this episode um, blows up, which happens like not, not every, every episode streams equally. Like that's still fucking awesome. You know, even if it's an uneven distribution, cause certain people fuck with different episodes for whatever reason, but mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's healthier and it's just more, it, it it's more fulfilling and, and it allows me and I'm, I'm just speaking for me. It allows me to do my job better as a creative worrying about those type of relationships than to constantly be fiending over video streams and, and, uh, downloads, which you need, like ultimately that's what you want, but it's so hard to make those increase, but to not have that be the focus of what you're doing. And mm -hmm. I'm still figuring out ways to, to free myself of that and release myself from it. And it sounds like you're doing a really good job uh, of doing that exact thing with the artists that you work with. Yeah, we're trying to get better every day. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a building community is its own art form. Yeah. You know, we're, you, sorry to cut to you out. Do you want me to close the window, by the way? Is that distracting? No. There's uh, some, some background noise that'll be taken out in, in post-production, but we got some construction workers that... <laughs> wanted to wanted to join the podcast. Today. I didn't even realize yeah. they were there. Yeah, there you go. They're, uh, they're they might be a figment of my imagination. We've drinking too much Irish coffee. I'm starting <laughs> to I'm starting to hallucinate. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's um, y you were saying that's that's the goal that you have with the artists you work with. It's the goal with the artists and also the label. You know, I'm also focused on building community around the label. A lot of my favorite labels have a built-in community. They, the fans, uh, like maybe they get introduced to the label through the artist, but then they're like, oh, I trust this label's taste. Mm. They're always going to put out really great music with a really great story, with a really captivating world and awesome visuals. And for me, there's a label called XL Recordings and they've put out, you know, artists like Adele, Tyler, the yeah. Creator, uh, Jungle, um, Damn, there's, 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 there's a lot. There's this new yeah. artist DVR that they're working with. XL, like the, the letters XL. Yeah, XL okay. recordings. To and check them out. They are one of my biggest inspirations for a label um, because they make me feel really cool. You know, they make me feel like really validated as a music listener. And, and, and I also trust their taste and everything they put out. I'm always going to listen to it. I'm always going to check out what they're doing because I trust them that they have the intention to always give me some really 
a create like mm. a new music that's amazing that is and the artists themselves as people are also amazing people i'm not going they're not giving me anything cheap mm. and i love that and so i inspire to build you know a similar community with my label and offer you know a, a similar uh, giving that that they do um, just a little a little different you know with yeah. my own my own flavor my own yeah so we've talked about a lot of the the positive sides of the music industry and mm-hmm. some of the the darker games that you've managed to avoid like becoming obsessed with streams or, or playlist placement things like that is is there outside of those things is there a particular segment of the music industry a a darker part of the music industry that you feel that music artists on a broad scale are giving too much attention like if if you were to say you know fucking stop worrying about this don't worry about x just put more effort into y is there something we haven't talked about yet that you've seen with your own artists where you can confidently say like don't this is this is a game this is a facade if you waste energy on this you're literally putting energy into nothing or it might even hurt you um hmm that's a really good question i would say you know we we've already been talking about this but social media can be a really big trap for yeah. artists um just trying to post all the time with nothing to say, really. Um, I think artists can get caught in thinking that's important, but I think posting with intention, um, finding things that line up with what you're already doing in your life and, you know, posting about that instead of just like trying to come up with things for social media. Mm. A lot of times artists get caught up in thinking that, they aren't interesting just with what they're doing. And I'd say that they're wrong. And they only think that because they're so close to their own life. Mm. But, you know, say you start just recording, you know, what, like the music that you're making, you know, you just, and you post a little bit of that, or you just, you know, you're outside walking, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, people want to know you for who you are. So instead of, and, but, you know, a lot of people get caught up just creating random things that have nothing to do with their music because they're just looking for engagement. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely get sucked into that where I have this internal clock of posting, whether it's on, you know, Instagram or YouTube, whatever, really not YouTube, because whenever I have a new podcast, I just put it out. But Instagram, you can post a million things whenever you want. And so I think about, you know, is this post my internal clock of having something authentic to say? Or is this the external clock of me thinking that you have to post once a day or three times a day or three times a week? And I don't really have anything to say, but I'm just going to throw this quote or picture up there because this is the clock I'm paying attention to. The, 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 the pressure from the external rather than developing something from within those things for me get fucked up a lot. Cause it's like, it's, it's all coming at you at once. Mm-hmm. And then I guess another dark, darker aspect of the music industry is because it's an industry of people, you know, 
a lot of people will start to look at an artist as no longer a human. It's a product. And I try to avoid those kinds of people, yeah. uh, but they exist. Um, I try, you know, one of the most important things for me in this industry, you know, is talking to artists as people and connecting with them on a personal level, which is also dangerous because then you get, you know, you get really, you get really involved in their lives and say, if there was a split, it's a lot more emotional. Oh yeah. But that's, that's a, that's, you, that's the risk you're willing to take. And that's happened multiple times now where you know we've split with artists and you get so close to them and you're no it's no longer just business you know it's also it's personal because music is a personal thing you know you're talking about you know things in their life um you know especially me i try and get extremely personal i don't want to just hop on the phone and talk about the next song i want to know what's going on in their life because that that affects their music and i want to help the artist bring out who they are and not be afraid to put that out into the yeah. music. Yeah, the, the, it reminds me of uh, something that I was thinking about during the podcast, which is, or, or before the podcast, which is the the big slash corporate labels versus the the independent and smaller labels, which today are not always the smaller labels. They're the independent mm-hmm. ones. Uh, sometimes they uh, outbranch the corporate labels. But a thought that I had is, uh, and you can tell me if this is a fair comparison. So big corporate labels gamble on artists where they will sign, you know, let's say they sign 60 artists in a year and they're hoping that one of those artists will recoup the costs of the other 59. And then they cut however many they cut at the end of the year or whenever the contract's up. But an independent label is investing in artists where you you look at the asset more fully and it's also he or she or they, they're also people, like you said, they're not just the intangible, they're not just the tangible uh, asset of the pr- products that they put out, they're also the person. And so you're investing on a much more personal level and it's less of a gamble, not to say that things may not work out because they, they don't always work out, but it, you at least feel like you're investing in a person and a project rather than kind of throwing darts against the wall and a bunch of different artists and then hoping that one of those artists turns out. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair thing that you've seen? Um, kind of. I'd say that there are indie labels that also try and you know sign a bunch of things and hope something sticks. That's just a, a strategy. Um, there's a time and place for, for major labels. I think every artist, their career is going to be different. What they need is going to be different. And at different points in an artist's career, you're going to need different things. I would say for a developing artist, um, you know, there are developing artists that go straight to a major label and become insanely big and major labels offer those resources, but you still have to win over the whole entire company. It's not like you sign with a major label and all of a sudden the whole company is your biggest fan. Mm. And you have to, you know, it's almost like a strategic, you know, you got to work the building from the inside. And the person who signs you also has to work the building on the inside to get everyone on your team, to get everyone excited about what you're doing. And so that's why it's not always the best to sign with a major label off the bat. 
it's it's great to sign with you know a more um, involved label like someone like Pack Records when you're yeah. developing because we will there's only you know we you are going to be a priority and we're going to help you get to a place where then you might need bigger resources like a major label. Yeah, it's all it's all strategy. I don't like. I think there's really a uh, a time and place for each artist to either work with a major or work with an independent, depending on the needs at the time. Yeah. I, so I want to ask you about the, the Travis Scott incident at Astro world, but before mm-hmm. that, let's, let's take a break. I'm going to go, uh, okay. put some energy into the toilet and we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll come back, maybe do a refill back from the, the sustenance and bathroom break. And something that I've been, this is a weird thing to say looking forward to asking because it was a complete tragedy that happened mm-hmm. and um you know it's it's not it, it, obviously there's there's not a lot of things that you could take from what happened in a positive light but with with Travis Scott's Astro World that happened back in November 2021 I believe yeah November 2021 Travis Scott had the Asher World concert. It was all over the news that 10 people died at the concert. Mm-hmm. Dozens more got injured. There were videos of ambulances in the crowd and Travis Scott on stage pausing his performance. And it, and it looked like he, from the videos at least, and, and I don't have a clear 100% perspective on what happened, obviously, because I'm just judging the videos of the performance and what other people posted and from what I could see, it looked like there was a line of sight between people that needed help who were on stage, whether the, it was the actual performer or crew members. Um, and, and there was some sort of communication between Travis Scott's crew and people that were actually going onto the stage saying, we need help, we need help, like people are dying. And there seemed like there was, you know, little to no response. I wanted to know as uh, as a live performer and someone who's been in arenas with thousands of people and, you know, you have to make sure things are safe. You have to make sure people are having a good time. And when things cross a certain line, you know, it's okay to stop the show for someone to not suffer health consequences, of course, and to not die. That's something you you never in a million years want to happen. I wanted to know as, as a live performer, what were your initial thoughts when the Travis Scott news came out when, uh, I don't know if you saw videos of the incident or, or what was going on, like, cause you could probably, I'm sure you could picture yourself on that stage in front of thousands of people. Like what, uh, what a situation like that would be like, what were your initial thoughts on the, the Travis Scott incident? Yeah. I mean, it's an absolute tragedy, and I think multiple multiple people are to blame. I don't think it's Travis Scott's fault, you know? I don't think it's... I've seen how these work, you know, out of anyone I blame, the venue, whoever runs the venue, the promoters, and also the team behind Travis Scott. As a performer on stage, I have headphones in my ears, because you, I, I am, I have a click playing. That's you know, I hear, I hear JT, I hear Chelsea, and me mostly. 
I barely hear the crowd at all, mm. unless I pull, take something out of my ears, which is very rare. So if someone was yelling something from the crowd, there's I could not hear them. Hear it, yeah, I could not hear them. Nor, like I'm so in the moment. Yes, I'm looking at the crowd, but you know, think I'm not necessarily thinking about what's going on out there unless something catches my eye. Mm. And when there's thousands of people, it there's a lot. It, it looks really crazy from the stage. Mm. But the reason why I say I blame the team a lot is because when something does occur out in the crowd, our tour manager or whoever has control of our in-ears, they can say something into our ears. So like, for example, this is a very different experience than like yeah. a, a mosh pit or something like or people dying. Yeah. There's someone in the audience during Quinn92's performance, like raising their hand in the air. But it was more of like he wanted to propose to his girlfriend on stage. And so the tour manager will talk into the microphone that's on the side of the stage, be like, hey, Mike, someone wants to do a proposal. Do you want to do it? And then Mike ha has, you know, he can talk um, into a, a different mic that only mm. goes to that, be like, be like, yeah, sure, or no. You know, so those kinds of, communications happen. Yeah. Like if I have something break on my drum set, I have a little button that I press and a microphone has to be being, being, and I can be like, Hey, I need help. I don't have a drumstick or my cymbal fell. Can someone help me? And they can also talk to us too. Mm. So they could be, they could have been, you know, at the Travis Scott show, they could be like, Hey, there's a lot of shit happening out in the crowd right now. I think we need to stop the show. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if there's, I don't know if that happened during a Travis Scott show and, and Travis just like didn't do anything. I don't know if that happened, but you know, that is something that happens. Also, you know, it's important that the venues are set up, you know, and all exit strategies are thought of from what I understand and what I know. And what I remember from this incident happening is that there was no way for people to get out. Mm. There, people were corralled in. Yeah, but I, th I believe most of the deaths were from s some sort of suffocation, like exactly. basically pressure against a, a, a metal grate or barrier or someone else. Exactly. So there needs to be a very, there needs to be very clear exit strategies and that's up to the venue. You know, that's thought about at every single festival. You know, I don't know how much detail because I'm not involved on that side of things. I'm just a performer, but I know that, exit strategies are thought about. Mm. Um, so I blame, you know, like I said, I, I think everyone is at fault as a whole. I don't blame Travis Scott solely for everything that happened. It's it's a group effort. You know, the venue it messed up for not having proper exit strategies. The team messed up for, I don't know if they pointed out into the crowd to Travis Scott and communicated to him what was happening. But as a performer on stage, there's a lot of things, you know, that are going through your mind, you know, having a good performance, you know, you know, you're not seeing everything. You have lights on you that are blinding you mm. from seeing things. There's so much stimulation. How much of the crowd can you actually see from your perspective? Is it just the first few rows? Like, does it look like a sea of black past a certain point? It depends. You know, sometimes I will uh, take the time, you know, if I'm not sitting there and really, you know, like look, see how far yeah. I can go back. But at a festival, you know, which this was pretty much like a festival, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you, you can't really, you can't really see that far, far away. Um, 
And, you know, this situation is so, there's so much nuance around it. You know, there's so many, there's so many things that could have done. I, I blame, I blame every, every, everyone, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't agree to just blame Travis Scott as the person who, who did this. Yeah. I blame, I blame the team. I blame the venue. I, I think everyone could have acted better. Yeah. No, I, when I saw the, the footage and when I was bringing my own experience into imagining what it would have been like to be there as an audience member, because I've never been someone that's performed uh, on stage, whether it's in any capacity, you know, in, in front of 50 people or 50,000 people, which is, which is what it was at Astroworld. When I'm using that perspective and when I'm, when I had an instant reaction to seeing the footage right after Astroworld happened, my initial thoughts were, you know, kind of fuck Travis Scott, you know, what, why, why was he looking directly at people and at ambulances in the audience and people rushing on stage and he's doesn't even care that people are trying to get his attention and all this stuff. And I did, you know, did a little bit more digging and also listening to people who have experience performing live like yourself in front of thousands of people. There's a lot of blame to go around and there's a lot of the, the, it seems like there was an absence of procedure because obviously no one wanted people to die at that concert. Yeah. It's bad. Even if you don't care about your fans as human beings, it's still terrible from a marketing standpoint, which I'm sure Travis Scott does. He, he um, I can't speak for him, but he definitely has a, a deep connection to his fans, at least from the fans flung to the artist. He, he's one of the most massive artists in the world. And it, it seems like they're, there should have been something set up logistically where if there's a problem in any aspect of the arena, whether it's a fan incident up front or behind, or someone's rushing the side of the stage saying, Hey, my friend is dying. Those people are given instructions to tap into a central person. And that central person then has to make the decision to notify Travis Scott or someone else on stage to take care of it. Like a very clear arc of procedure where you you don't leave it up to chance. It's just a matter of a yes or no. Do I pass this on or do I not pass this on? Okay. Yes. Travis Scott knows, uh, stop the performance, get people off. And it didn't, at least watching it on, on video and, and not being there, it didn't seem like he was given any sort of guidance from the people in the arena. And I, and again, I don't know. It's just kind of like checking in saying, you know, put a hand in the air. If people, if you're okay. And when you're in a concert arena with 50,000 people and you see 49,800 put their hands in the air and you don't see this, the pocket of people where people are suffocating to death as an artist on stage, you probably look at that and you're like, fuck yeah. Like everyone's mm -hmm. tapped into this concert. And that's even assuming that he could see the entirety of the venue. And on top of that, you know, I didn't even think about the fact that he can't hear shit going on probably besides his own crew and the, the, I yeah, the I'm not sure if he wears earpieces or what. Like, yeah. I, I just don't know. But like, 
there, it's just a lack of communication and procedure. Like you're saying, like, why didn't the security guard say something? Like, why? Like, it's not, it's not solely up to Travis Scott yeah. to shut down the show. Like, there's, like, there's so many, like, the people that run the whole festival can just shut it down too. Yeah. Like, it, it was, and like, I saw videos, you know, of this one girl, you know, climbing and trying to talk to the cameraman yeah. to do something like, like, it, I, you know, that guy could have done something too. Like, everyone yeah. has walkie talkies. Like and no one did anything. Yeah. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's a real bummer. Yeah. I and, you know, I I was part of uh, putting the blame solely on Travis Scott at the beginning because I didn't really think about it. I just had you know this angry reaction. I was like, fuck this. Like you know, I I love this guy. I have a poster of him in my room from Astro World. Listen to this dude every day. Kind of sucks. It, it sucks that people lost their lives and this happened. And I don't know how to feel. Uh, listening to his music and and I wasn't thinking about the the total failure of responsibility from people surrounding him and it also doesn't help it it also doesn't help uh, a situation to not happen like that the next time if yeah. you only blame Travis Scott yeah if you only blame Travis Scott and you remove Travis Scott and you put back the same crew and the same people running the venue that shit's going to happen for the next artist that performs there with 50,000 people. So, you know, it's, I, I'm sure you guys, you have some sort of procedure, some sort of uh, rules that you can follow at a venue where, okay, something weird's happening. We do this. Like you said, you have different channels. And so if, if you don't think about this stuff like that and you put the blame entirely on one person, then you don't do anything preventative for that to to happen again. Yeah, it's it's really easy to blame one person, especially if you don't understand how you know the whole thing works. Obviously, it makes sense to blame Travis Scott. It's his show. You know, it's it's his audience. You know, he riles everyone up a lot. Like, but oh yeah, know, he's it, famous for the mosh. Yeah, he's famous for, famous for that. But if you really understand how the, the workings of you know a festival or, you know, a, show, a giant show goes, you know, there's a lot of other people involved that, and that it was a total disaster of procedure and communication. Yeah. When you, when you have something that happens to an artist that you love listening to, it's something that they do. And, and, with Travis Scott, you know, obviously this is a tragedy that happened. I still listen to Travis Scott. I love his music. His music does something to me that's separate from the man, Travis Scott. He, mm -hmm. he is someone that changes my life in a, in a musical, spiritual way with his music. When something happens to someone in the media, when, when, when someone does something, and it, whether it's an artist or a director, filmmaker, writer that you care about and they fuck up, how do you think about consuming their art after the fact? Like if it's something that really irks you, like they, they truly fucked up, do you do the, the, you know, separate the art from the artist? Is, is it a combination of those things? Like how, how do you then go on to think about the art of that person and also the person that exists? It's a constant debate in my own mind as well. Um, you know, there's artists like XXX Tentacion who, 
you know, he has done not great things in his life, but he's, you know, an icon, you know, um, you know, and there's definitely ways of justifying, you know, like, like the art is more than that person. You know, there's definitely, you can do that. And, you know, I've definitely been that way as well, but it's, it's such a a conflict in my mind, you know, if, cause I'm also not someone who like really digs cancel culture. Like I believe in, you know, people that, that people can, you know, come back and, and apologize and make up for what they've done. I think for me, it's a matter of understanding what they've, what this artist has done and giving it proper time, maybe not, you know, like, like I think things just need time. I, I think most of the time, <laughs> just the time. So most the time, of the time, they need most time. Of the, most of the time things need time. You know, like you go through anything tragic. Like I, like, for example, I just, this has nothing to do with anything bad, but I just, you know, my grandfather just passed last month. I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. Thank you. Um, and you know, grieving, the grieving process is something that takes a long time. You know, same with like a breakup. It takes a long time to get over. Um, any kind of tragic incident takes time and it doesn't mean that it disappears, but you can grow, you know, around that, you know, you grow, you grow more as a person and you're able to accept these things, you know, and, and controversy happens around artists all the time. You know, Kanye West is constantly in and out of the spotlight yeah. for doing crazy shit, but people still, you know, love him and are inspired by him. Um, I, I do think, I actually, you know, I do think you can, you know, respect the, the art and separate the person from that. Mm. As long as you're not like rooting for that person. I don't know. This is, I'm never like, this is such like a debate in my mind all the time because I don't agree with, you know, bad actions of artists. And I don't stand up for, you know, what, what they, what they do as, as people. But, you know, art is so interesting. You know, it's, it's a moment in time. It, art, is expressing a moment from that person's life that resonates with many. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, just because they made it, it doesn't, it, it's not them, even though it is them. They're, you know, some of the, the worst people in the world can still have emotions that everyone can resonate with. Um. So it's really tricky. It's it's really tricky to to totally not like admire beautiful art, even if someone does something really bad. I I feel like there's definitely a, a line that yeah. can be crossed, but yeah, like if if he uh, instead of those 10 people passing away in the concert, he like poisoned them instead. And yeah. <laughs> like Travis Scott's music, then, uh, you know, it'd be much more of a harder thing to separate the art from the artist in that case. But I, I, 
like that that incident was the first time where I thought about the actions of a music artist that I truly love and how that would affect the way that I listen to their music. And, you know, people talk about R. Kelly and Michael Jackson. I don't really listen to them. So the art from the artist debate really didn't apply to me where people are like, are you still going to listen to Michael Jackson? I'm like, I know he's iconic, but I didn't really listen to him to begin with. So I don't like, I'm not really a, a good person to have that debate with because I, my life will not be that different going forward if I listen to Michael Jackson or don't listen to Michael Jackson. But with Travis Scott, there were years in 2018, 2019, where he was my most streamed artist. I'd probably, you know, 2022, probably top three, top five. It's always changing. And I, I thought about it a lot. And not that this is the final conclusion, because it's different with every situation and every artist. But I thought when I, when I hear the song Butterfly Effect, for instance the man Travis Scott is not the thing being put on a pedestal in my mind. It, 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 it is not the thing that is being elevated in my mind in that moment. When I hear the song Butterfly Effects, I constantly go back to a moment in my mind where I'm in Chicago with friends in an Uber in a bar getting insanely fucked up on a New Year's weekend getting ready to go out in river north and that to me is butterfly effect like when i yeah. i know travis scott made that song but that experience and and tons of other experiences are tied to songs where when i hear a song and i'm transported back to that moment that is the thing being elevated in my mind to me it's not even though travis scott made that song and i appreciate the art i am not honoring him in that moment. And I don't even think that he would say that the reason he made that song was to honor him in that moment. I think he would say, um, I made that song and it was me, but then I released it to the world and it becomes whatever it you want it to be or however yeah. it applies to you. So I, I don't know how Travis Scott thinks. That's just um, me making assumption. Um, but I, I don't think when it comes to music, I don't think that drawing these very tightly bound up lines between the piece of art and the artist does any good because your enjoyment of that song becomes uh, guiltified. I don't know. Yeah. That's definitely think, not a word. I think the problem is yeah. that they're getting paid. You know, you're still, that's, yeah. I think that's like the, you know, it's like you are supporting this person's livelihood by listening to their music. Yeah. That's the blockage I always come to when, yeah. I, when people say, okay, but you're streaming the song and no matter how small of the portion of his check, a single stream is on Spotify, you're still adding to the net worth on Travis yeah. Scott. And I don't, I honestly don't know how to answer that. Part of it's because I'm selfish and I fucking love his music and I'm fine with streaming a song and an artist not being a great person at this point in my life. Like if I enjoy the music, I, I just want to enjoy the music. Mm -hmm. And then I also do think about the, the team of Travis Scott, where there's a lot of, there's hundreds of people behind what he does and a lot of it's going to him, but not all of it's going to him. And there are, there are a lot of other people involved 
in the essence of Travis Scott and the brand of Travis Scott that are not the man Travis Scott. And then maybe that's just like a selfish way for me to put it without feeling bad about yeah. the money. But I, I do think it applies at least a little bit. I think so too. I just, I think it's a very complicated uh, topic. I don't know if there is a right or wrong answer. Like, cause like I feel, I feel so strongly about art and like that. It's like a, a channel, you know, like you're like, you're channeling something, you're making something from nothing and you're hopefully coming from a very vulnerable place, which, you know, is not the same person or you're not in the same headspace as one, you know, they, they, that person did something horrible. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's scary because I feel like humans, I think, I think, I think we fear like people who have done bad things because we all can see those parts of us in ourselves. Yeah. I think every, every person has, you know, vulnerable parts to them, you know, bad parts of them, good parts of them. We all feel this, the, the same emotions though most of the time unless you have some kind of mental disorder where you can't. So it's, it's like very, it's very tricky. It's like obviously I don't want to support the livelihood of someone who's doing bad things. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to pay them. But the art portion of it, you know, it's, if I, if I was a way better person than I am and I was in a position where I was releasing music that was touching millions, maybe even billions of people, this is if I was an absolute saint after an incident that occurred. If I had some sort of, like say I did something, um, something unforgivable, like I was, I was a music artist and I you know, poisoned my fans for some reason, like just poison people at a show and people are like, fuck this dude. He's done. Um, not listening to him again. I'm in jail. You know, I'm not, I'm probably not making much music for the rest of my life. Or if I am, it, I'm not making money off of it because no one's going to want to work with me in a situation like that. I think it would be up to the artist to say, I've made pieces of art that people enjoy even though I've done things that make me a piece of shit and understandably so people hate the person I am, but they also enjoy my music. So I'm giving up any sort of future income from the music to let people enjoy it guilt-free. I don't know if that would ever happen, but I would hope that if I was ever in a situation like that, which I pray to God, I never am in mm -hmm. that I would give my fans, like I wouldn't make the, decision of a decision to be made by my fans. I would make the decision for them and say like, I fucked up. I'm not taking shit from this. Listen to it. You know, if you like the music, the decisions being made for you, you can now listen to it and know that I'm not benefiting it at least financially. Um, you know, my streams will still go up, but maybe I'll put it towards something else. Yeah. And then I would have to be a piece of shit, but then also be willing to give up uh, a, a massive amount of money, which those two things can coexist. It would be rare, but that's, that's I think something. if you're a piece of shit, you're probably not going to want to yeah. give up your, your yeah. money. That's like, yeah, it's yeah. a very, very unrealistic, but that's something that could make it easier on the listener if yeah. that ever were to happen. Mm 
So um, another thing that I wanted to get into um, in regards to cancel culture is the the controversy that's going on with Joe Rogan and Spotify right now. Mm-hmm. And music artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, they are pose, they're, they're pulling their music off of Spotify, their, their entire catalogs off Spotify because they don't want their music on the same platform as Joe Rogan. And Neil Young has been open about that reason where there are conversations about vaccines and healthcare that uh, he adamantly disagrees with and, and doesn't uh, thinks those conversations are dangerous. Like he doesn't just disagree and it's, da- it's actually dangerous and harming people. And so he has pulled his music off of Spotify as long as Spotify continues to upload Joe Rogan podcasts. Mm-hmm. What, what are your initial thoughts on the transaction between Spotify and Joe Rogan and Neil Young, like that, that, um, that controversy, uh, as a life of its own, like what, when you, when you heard about this, uh, however far you dug into it, like full disclosure, like I'm a huge fucking Joe Rogan fan. People know this who've listened to the podcast. So I'm not coming from an unbiased place at all. And I try to make myself unbiased when I'm listening to other people's opinions but I know I can never do that a hundred percent because Joe Rogan's a podcast hero of mine. And, and he opened a lot of mental doors to doing what I do. So I, so I want to, I wanted to ask your opinion on the controversy as um, not someone who's, you know, maybe you're not as big of a Joe Rogan fan as me, but also you're, you're a music artist and, and you work with a, a bunch of other music artists on the performing aspect and also managing aspect what were your initial thoughts on what's going on at Spotify? Um, I don't honestly really like I've been seeing it. I haven't really dug into it like too much. I feel like I, I should have just been kind of really busy with like my own, my own things. Yeah. But I understand being mad at Spotify for like supporting like a uh, hate speech and like, misinformation but i wouldn't i don't know what i wouldn't pull my catalog from the platform because you're also like you got like our like you, that's your way to communicate with the fans it's like a lot of people have spotify like a, a lot of people use spotify yeah um like i it's my sole way i, I listen to like music i'm a, like i consider myself a spotify super user like, I don't know why you would pull your catalog from there and upset like a large portion of your fans. I, I understand being upset with the platform, but I think you can voice your your opinion. You know, like uh, there's um, a podcaster I really like. Her name is uh, Brene Brown. Um, mm, yeah, she's I, I love her books. I love how she speaks about empathy. Um, and I know that like she took like a like a break from posting to figure out like what she wants to do. And I, and um, I think what her decision was is like, she wants to keep spreading, you know, like her, what like her message and her positive message, because that's way more effective than just not posting it at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I agree with the sentiment of, 
sharing your opinion and sharing what you think about a certain situation or, or public figure like Joe Rogan, and then also coexisting with that person on a platform. I don't, I don't think it has to be either or. There, there is, I, I do, I do get the the power of leverage and applying pressure. And then maybe if, if a bunch of artists stack up and this steamrolled into something that there's possibly a situation where Spotify could make the decision to remove Joe Rogan. Um, and then I, I also just heard that Joe Rogan being on Spotify is like the equivalent of one Taylor Swift album being released per day in terms wow. of the listener, uh, the, the length that people listen to the podcast and the amount of people that tune in each time a, an episode is dropped. So I don't know if it could get to that point logistically for Spotify to make the decision to cut Joe Rogan, nor do I think they should. I, 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 I support... I support people disagreeing with the shit that I say because I, I can't I can't speak for Joe Reagan or Neil Young, but I, I would say from my perspective, if I'm putting out podcasts that people disagree with and if they have some sort of uh, response to that, that's at least somewhat thoughtful. You know, it's not just yeah. it's not just completely ad, ad hominem like you're fucking you're, you're a piece of shit. It's like you're a piece of shit. And also, this is what I disagreed with about your episode, this, this, and this. I'd be like, all right, this person is pissed off, but at least they've pointed to something that they don't agree with. I'm totally for people openly disagreeing with the shit that I put out. And I disagree with things that other people put out. And there's a time and a place to have those conversations. But I just don't, I don't, I don't get the reaction of pulling your creation from a platform as big as Spotify, because I don't think anyone wins. I don't think Neil Young wins. I don't think Joe Rogan wins. I don't think Spotify wins. And it, in my limited view, I only see Neil Young losing in the long term, mm -hmm. especially with the younger fans that are on Spotify, that they're not, you know, a lot, a lot of people that listen to Neil Young, he's an old guy. They have records, they have CDs. Spotify is a platform where you can get recommended music that is beyond your generation. And so, you know, unless, unless Amazon music blows up wherever he's at now, um, Apple music is already really big, probably the main competitor of Spotify, but Spotify is still like a huge outlet for people to discover his music. So I don't, I don't see in how he is getting something out of this besides the points for being uh, virtuous in some way or taking a stand. I, th I think he could have taken a better stand by staying on the platform and also disagreeing. And maybe there, there would have been a Rogan episode out of it with Neil Young and, and, and Joe Rogan, which would probably be fucking like be one of the most listened to episodes of all time. And, and maybe it will still happen. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan came out and said, he's a huge Neil Young fan. And he obviously doesn't want, uh, him not to be on the platform, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, t a, t a tough situation, but a lot of it just didn't make sense to me.
I, I just I don't know enough to really say anything yeah. about it. I uh, I I wrote something down about it that I wanted to read, and um, it, it's about our ability to. I I asked I was asking a question to myself. Do do I think we're losing the ability to live a fulfilling life alongside content that we don't like? And my my initial thought is that you know most of most of the danger that we face in today's society is now digital. Like there's everything is online. Our our personal identities are online. Our finances are online. The people we love are online. All this information. And of course, there's still physical health and there's always going to be the real world. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ways in which someone can throw a digital spear through your life and just fucking wreck it. Mm-hmm. And so much of our beings are now digitized. And we haven't evolved to be able to perceive these threats in, I, I don't, I don't think an effective, an, an effective fashion. We, we evolved to perceive physical threats, but we haven't evolved over a long period of time to be able to pick up on things that are threatening us in the digital world. And so I, my complete, uh, you know, no, no scientific, uh, data to, to back this up. Although I'm sure people have done studies on this is, is that our uh, we're really good at perceiving physical threats versus physical discomfort. We can tell whether the couch we're sitting on is a threat, like some there's like a something that's actually wrong with the couch that's gonna something sharp that could poke us, or there's uh, a trap door underneath, you know, maybe like you feel the couch is like going out from under you and you like jump off the couch or someone is on the couch next to you and you're not sensing that this space is safe. So you get off the couch. So we're really good at perceiving physical discomfort versus physical danger. But I don't think we've evolved to perceive digital discomfort versus digital danger. I think, um, and, and something like Neil, the Neil Young incident and Joe Rogan, there's a digital discomfort and there's this elevation of the digital discomfort to a digital danger that you don't really see in the physical world where, where, something, where something that you are uncomfortable with, uh, the stakes get raised immediately to know this is dangerous. This is now harming people. This is now something that is a digital threat is now on the same level as a physical threat. Not that digital threats can't be on the same level as physical threats because they certainly can be when it's affecting your life. But, but I don't think from a human evolutionary standpoint, we have the, the foundation and the structure to perceive the physical danger from the digital danger and those wires seem to get crossed in a lot of ways where we get the threat. But if it's on the digital side, we're not really sure how to draw the line between discomfort and danger. But if it's on the physical side, those have been really clear for thousands of years, Mm -hmm. millions of years. Well, I mean, I think we are biologically the same as we were, you know, thousands of years ago, nothing has really changed. So obviously as our technology continues to advance, we are not advancing with it. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, 
it's a wild, wild game, wild game out there that we're playing. So I don't know uh, where we're going to be in 10 years, but I think we'll still be around and, and it'll be exciting. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, it's a it's pretty wild on the internet right now. Um, but for some reason, I feel like all this conflict needs to happen in order to find our way out. You know, like even in my day to day life, um, there's there's conflict, and the, the only way is through. And I think we're just in a very immature age where we don't know how to react to things. We are having trouble seeing eye to eye. And the only way is through right now. And I hope that positive progress comes out of it. Um, That's just my optimistic view. Yeah. So speaking of progress and things happening in the future, what do you think that live performances will be like in the metaverse like when the metaverse is more fulfilled into an actual ecosystem where you know just as many people that are considering seeing a performance live in madison square garden will also consider seeing it live in the metaverse like those two things are equally coexisting what do you think the music landscape will look like if 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 it happens i mean their plans for it to happen when, when things get to the point where augmented reality of a concert will be something that is a competitor to being at an actual concert. I personally don't understand how that would ever be a thing. I mean, and that might be me like, you know, 60, uh, me being like a six-year-old being like, in my day, like we used in to go day, to concerts. Yeah, in my day, we walked to Red Rocks and we yeah. waited on the line. Um, I find, you know, being in person is something super beautiful, you know, that that connection, you know, that's what I love. You know, I've we've done concerts where, you know, it's during, during uh, quarantine where, you know, we, we were just being filmed and people could watch it there's no one there you know for me like it's yeah i love playing music and you know i've been in plenty of bands in the past where i played for two people and 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 those two people were only there because they walked to the bar to get a drink they didn't care about that we were playing there and i love that connection between me and the band but that connection between me and the audience is so amazing as well like I would not like if I was just playing for in front of a camera. Um, yeah. I and until the technology is amazing enough where it, it feels real, like I just don't think it 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 will it can compete. Yeah, no, that that's a good point because I'm you know I'm selfish. I'm thinking about it from the audience side where I'm like I hope the concert feels just as real sitting in the audience as it does plugging on an Oculus and and going to the metaverse. But I'm not thinking about, I hope, you know, what is it going to look like from the artist side? Will the artist just see a camera and be expected to be playing like they play to 10,000 people, but it's just a bunch of these 3D cameras set up and that's streaming to people at home. I'm not really... I haven't thought about that energetic side of it where, where how, how can we expect the artists to keep up that energy but e- too? But, but even from the consumer side, like that, it's so awesome being in the same place as someone I love. Yeah. Like seeing my favorite band Jungle playing in person, like being so close to them 
is, you know, that's a, that's a really cool experience to be in the same energy, you know, the same, same space as them sharing the same space. If I'm, you know, logging in on my Oculus and they're not really there. Yeah. They're not really there. Like I'm not in the same space as them and I'm not in the same space as all these other people. It might seem that way, but I, I feel like it's going to be, and I might be totally wrong. Like it might be, I feel like it's a long time before we get to a place where it can compete. Yeah. So for me, it would have to be as good as the public experience as going to the venue. I don't see myself paying a similar price to a concert ticket to experience something that is not uh, completely in flow. Like if I'm seeing glitches in the side of my headset or things don't seem like they're real, that would kind of ruin the experience to me, which is like also why people sometimes freak out during trips where your experience of the reality that you've gotten used to things start to feel off and then you realize you've entered a different slice of reality. Mm-hmm. If the slice of reality in the Oculus and in the metaverse does not make me feel as fulfilled and emotional and passionate about the the slice of reality I enter in, uh, you know, uh, the Brooklyn Bazaar or Red Rocks, like wherever the fuck I am, I don't see myself being interested in that. But on the other hand, if for for instance, if we were do, we're we're doing this podcast right now and we're not in the metaverse, I hope. Um, and then after I pressed the stop recording button, I took off my Oculus and I was like, "Holy fuck!" That felt like I was with Gavin actually on my couch the entire time, and I actually forgot that I was in the metaverse. To me, that would be the level where I could see myself then paying for an experience like that. Like if I, it was so good that I forgot I wasn't there. Yeah. But that's, I think we're far away from that point. But like the audio would have to be right. You know, like what if I can't buy the best headphones that I'm using, like shitty headphones, not going to sound the same. What if the Oculus piece I'm like headset I'm using isn't like the best one. And it's like crappy visuals, like there's no, I, I, at least right now, I don't feel you could emulate, you know, what it feels like to be at a live venue, yeah. like, especially the, like the audio. Like, yeah. It's just going to sound like uh, you're listening to like a recording of a song. And I don't want to, I don't want to feel that. I yeah. want to feel the music. I'm, wanna... I'm part of the, the experience of going to a live venue is that you have to wait 30 minutes for your hearing to come back because you yeah. still feel the throbbing, the, the euphoric throbbing in your head from the concert because you were standing that close to the speakers and it's yeah. like the music stops and your friends are talking to you, but you're like, wah, wah, like you hear that <laughs> like extra shit and you're, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you, you've, you have that times a thousand when you're actually on stage, but that's, that's all part of the experience that the audio, especially of, of feeling like you're being surrounded by the music and being surrounded by the experience. That would be something you know, hats off to whoever makes the technology to do that. But I, I'm in a similar boat as you where I I would say I, I see it inevitably happening, but I think it's a lot further off than what people think when they're like, mm-hmm. we'll be going to concerts. You know, concerts will be just as good 10 years from now uh, in the metaverse as they will be 
uh, in person. I, I see it more of like a 50, 75 year thing down the line. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I won't go to a concert in the metaverse until it's better than a concert in real life. Like until it really feels like I can do whatever and mm-hmm. it feel like super real. Like I, I just don't see myself doing Your it. favorite band is Jungle? Yeah. So if Jungle was putting on one concert in the year 2030 and you could either go to that concert in the metaverse or not go at all. Like you could, for some reason, you couldn't make it to that location, but you had the option to go in the metaverse. I probably wouldn't go. You wouldn't want to go? Unless I can go into the metaverse, hop on like a lion and ride around a lion while listening to Jungle and then that lion like starts flying and I'm flying and, and I'm like flying around the stage where jungle is yeah. and I'm eating whatever I want. That's just magically appearing, you know, until like it, it and all of that would feel real. Not like a, not like a fake video game world. Yeah. Like, that's, that, yeah. Should we, <laughs> should we be more selfish for what we expect from the metaverse? Cause a lot of conversations center around when is it going to be as good as the live experience? When will music performances be as good? When will Zoom meetings feel like you're in the room? But maybe we should be more like, for me to do it, it needs to be better than that. I I wanna be, you know, on Zoom in the middle of the earth. Like I wanna be in the core of the earth on Zoom and be like, we're sitting in somewhere I couldn't be in the the real world To, to ask the makers of the metaverse, we need this shit to, build upon the human experience and not just be equivalent to it, if that's even possible. Personally, I don't want it at all. Like I, I, I just love real things. Even, you know, the theories that this might not even be real. I just, I just don't want to feel like alone, but together. I just, like, I feel like, and I know that's where we're headed. Yeah. No, it's, and it's something I'm also adapting to at the same time, but I'd rather not. <laughs> what, what are your, what are your favorite drugs to play music on and your favorite drugs to listen to music on? And are those different drugs? I, I mean, to be honest, like I've only really played music, drinking or, you know, smoking weed and. I love uh, like smoking a little weed or taking an edible and, and playing music, um, but it really depends on the music. Like I wouldn't do that for for a Chelsea show because it just doesn't match the energy. But if I'm playing with like a psych rock band, yeah, something that is a little bit more like laid back, like definitely smoking weed and playing is like a really good time. Um, and same with like listening to music. I've never really had like a crazy experience listening to music on psychedelics, I feel the most connected to music smoking weed still or yeah. taking edibles. Like I feel like I love, like there's always a moment, like say like at, at night, like I'll take like a little edible after like a long day. And all of a sudden this, this thing will, this energy will consume me. And I'll be like, I have to go just listen to music right now. And I just, and that honestly, like a lot of times I'll like take an edible to go to sleep and I'll yeah. end up just wanting to listen to music and I stay up for like three, four hours just listening to music. Is that the, is that your solution to go to sleep after a Chelsea show? Do you take an edible if, if you're, 
all, all else is lost? Are you like, I need to pop an edible, go to sleep now? Last tour, yeah. Last tour, like me and, and uh, JT, the keyboardist, decided to become stoners on the tour. Like, like I definitely like, I like, I like weed, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't normally do it every day. Like, um, it's, and I, I've honestly, I never, I never, I don't even have a weed guy right now. I just like, if say if I'm passing through Massachusetts, like going skiing, I'll like yeah. pick up some things. Um, but it's like when I have it, I do it. Like, and it's not, and it's like very occasional at this point in my life. But on this past tour, we just decided we're like, yeah, let's just let's just do weed every day. Yeah, I need I need to bite the bullet and just do an edible already because, you know, I've I've had experiences that are great horrible combination in between smoking weed and, and that's all part of the experience and I will continue to grow and evolve as a as a weed smoker uh far from connoisseur but a, a weed smoker nonetheless but I've I hear uh I've only heard bad stories about edibles when the person has taken more than they think they did or it's way too much I every, everyone who's had positive experiences on edibles has either taken, you know, something like a microdose or something that they can manage. And okay. so it's, it's, uh, I'm definitely interested in, in exploring music for one, the, the different ways in which an edible causes you to pay attention to music. That, that would be something. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, like I, I really, really love like, like, uh, being high and listening to music. Um, it feels like very, like, I feel like I feel, you know, the music very deeply. Um, and I do, a lot, I do like, especially at night, like I'll just like listen to music or there's times where like I'll, I'll have a speaker like in my shower, you know, and I'll put a playlist on and I'll end up staying in the shower for like an hour, like too yeah. long, just like, just like rocking out to music. Yeah. Dude, I, I have to. I had to cut myself off from listening to music as much during the day because I would, like, I couldn't stop myself at one point during the pandemic because I would just feel so good that I would be taking hour long breaks mm-hmm. every single day in the middle of the day, um, which is great some days, but other days I'm just like, damn, I just fucking walked around in my apartment looking like an insane person, bopping around to a Kid Cudi album and you know, 55 minutes flew by and it's, it's like, I couldn't imagine that on an edible that it's, yeah. it would be uh pretty wild. Luckily it's my job. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I, I just need to figure out a way to get paid to do it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I have a couple, couple questions as we wrap up or a couple, couple quotes, questions, inquiries. Cool. I read, uh, there's, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times called "The Power of a Good Cry" mm-hmm. by Wesley Morris, and it went into like all the ways that we kind of underrated crying as a culture and and emotional release. And Wesley Morris writes this in uh, "The Power of a Good Cry." He says, "Quote: What I'd felt was the ancient power of art to make a puddle of us." Et. The movie E.T. led me into a love affair with being made to cry among strangers in the dark. I almost typed, quote, being reduced to tears, except where is the reduction? Crying is an art. Crying for art is an honor, an exaltation, a salute, 
it's a pause with mucus and salt. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, uh, when's the last time you had a good cry? Um, I, to be honest, I cry, I cry often now. I, not like, it's not like a weekly thing, but I definitely have a good cry. I have, I have a good, I have, I have a lots of good cries and that's a new thing for me. Um, there was a, a long period in my twenties, um, where obviously, you know, we're, we're taught like crying is not like a cool thing to do or, um, crying's for pussies. Yeah, exactly. Like you're taught that crying's like, like, and I, I've felt that way for a while, um, until my grandma passed, like, um, this was like five years ago now. And I get up, um, or in the ceremony, I was, I was going to say something and I get up there and I start, you know, saying what I was going to say. And I just broke down in tears in front of everybody. And I can't tell you how relieving it felt to just let all that go. It was like when you pop a champagne bottle, you know, yeah. it's like all that fizz waiting to come out, you know, after you shake it mm -hmm. and you pop it. And it's just like this release. And ever since that moment, and also like, honestly, my relationship with, uh, with my, my girlfriend, Sarah, like she has taught me so much about, you know, letting it out and expressing how I really feel about things. And she's made it a very comfortable place for me to really release when I, when I need to. And, you know, I've had, I've had so many, uh, challenging moments now where, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid at all to cry. And, and I, and I, it's a very relieving feeling. Um, and it's a, a part of everybody. And it's, I think it, it just feels so good to let go. Yeah. Um, when you're, when you're feeling sad or down and you need to get it out, like just get it out, just let it out. Don't hold it back. Yeah. And I feel like it stores over time and the, the release of crying never goes away. It just builds up. Exactly. And, that, and, that, and that's what I realized, uh, during the, the pandemic. And obviously everyone's going through their own issues and horrible things that are happening to them with health and finances and, and, and a combination of those things. And I consider myself lucky with the situation that I was in where people close to me were healthy. I was healthy. I had my job. Um, and I was good for the most part, but I found out that in quarantine, being alone and being isolated and not having the pressure of someone else around me and worrying about what that person thinks of me all the time. I was crying about all these things that happened to me that I haven't cried for almost in a sequential order. Like, it, <laughs> like things that happened to me, like my grandpa passing away when I, when I was in eighth grade. Um, fast forward to, you know, a, a breakup in college, fast forward to a friend passing away like three years later, like all these things that I could tell were stored up somewhere in my body and somewhere in my mind. And then crying was the thing that I should have allowed myself to do at the time, but I didn't for whatever reason. And it was like this closure, <laughs> weird, like a, a literally like a sequential closure of uh, 
past events and that happened through the act of crying. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's like everyone everyone's just got to do it and like let go and it it teaches you new things when you cry. Um just gives you a different perspective when you sit in those emotions. Um, is there something that you find yourself thinking about or doing for the recent times that you've cried? Is, is there a, a consistent spark to it or is it all different depending on the time? It's all different depending on the time. Um, the guy, like, I mean, I had, I had my first panic attack recently. Um, I was I'm, super I'm very, I'm very sorry that it's uh, <laughs> very overwhelming. And yeah, it was super overwhelming. And, but what made it so freeing and how I got through it is, you know, I, I was, I had a good support system. You know, uh, my girlfriend was there for me and for, I just let it all out and I just felt, and she supported me and it felt really great to let it out. And I felt, you know, the next day I was ready to take on everything I was overwhelmed about. Um, and I felt like if I kept that in, I don't know if that would have happened. Um, I think we're, su- we're supposed to feel the full spectrum of emotion. You know, we've talked about fulfillment on this podcast. I think a fulfilling life in order to, is you need to be able to feel, feel the full spectrum of emotions. Um, it's that, you know, the overwhelming feeling and the panic attack I went through and to be able to let it out and then to be ready the next day to start, you know, um, overcoming everything I, that was worked up inside of me. Um, and now it feels so great a couple of weeks later to feel like I, I am doing that and I feel accomplished. And that all happened inside my mind. And because I was willing to let myself get to those places and to feel those things, to go through, there's no avoiding it. Like you said, it's going to build up and you're going to go through all those moments almost in a sequential order. And you're going to like peel back the layers and layers of things you just yeah. never went through. And I think it's way more healthy to go through the things as they arise. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you had to experience that because panic attacks fucking suck. <laughs> and, you know, we, we've talked about the the danger getting crossed up, digital and physical danger being misfired in, in our minds and our bodies. And panic attacks is definitely one of those situations where, um, you know, I've, I've had those moments where I feel like I'm going to die, even though I'm not in any real danger. Like mm-hmm. my, I feel like there's this intense threat to my life and it starts with the physical and then goes into irrational thoughts and, I know it's irrational. I know I'm not going to die, but my mind keeps telling me that. And it's, it's this chaotic, emotional, dark, and, you know, beautiful struggle when you get through it that feels like it comes from a place of holding shit in. So, so panic attacks for me is, is, part of the reason why I started to open myself up to the 
to allowing myself to cry more because for mm-hmm. me panic attacks often end with a cry like I, I there's this aftermath of panic where if, if if a panic attack is an earthquake for me i'll get aftershocks of you know even when it subsided i'll still get like these moments of like oh shit but i'm like oh it's you know it's i've just felt this much stronger two hours ago it's fine now but often that initial you know however long it lasts like 30 minutes an hour two hours of just in constant chaotic misery of a mind fuck it's it's ended it's subsided i'll say with cries i don't know i don't know if it's it's been a similar experience for you but it's kind of been like a almost a cathartic signal to myself that like okay this is this is ending now somewhat totally um i mean that's that's how it ended for me as well um my in my own experience but i also you know i i don't think as a society, we're comfortable feeling those kinds of ways. And we have su- such immediate distraction, you know, when you start feeling sad or bored or any bit uncomfortable, you know, at least for me, I'll grab my phone and distract myself. I'll scroll some social media, see something exciting, boost my dopamine, you and, know. In the metaverse, it's going to be so easy. You'll just have to wink your eye or do some movement and swipe and then you'll get the feed right in exactly. your eye. <laughs> so... I don't think we're comfortable even with the slightest bit of negative feelings. And I think we all need to sit in those feelings. I think they teach us things about ourselves. They teach us things about how we process things. Um, And if we never get to meet those parts of ourselves, um, how are you supposed to get through anything? Yeah. It's going to be harder. A little, a little thing, you know, like, oh my God, like, like how I was late today, you know, like I was supposed to be here at two, I got our two thirty. There's someone probably out there that, that probably ruined their whole day or, you know, their whole week. They get, get so caught up in these, in these little things rather than being like, like I was like, I was upset. I was definitely upset. I was like, damn it. Like I, identify as someone who's not late. I identify as someone who's on time, who's early. And, you know, I could have let that ruin, ruin me because it's against what my identity is. But instead I sat with it and, you know, I accepted it and I moved on, you know? And I, I and when that happened, when you were, uh, when it was 2.02, when I saw you were two minutes late, I called my doorman and I said, this is a picture of Gavin Chops. Don't let this motherfucker in. He's already two minutes late. He's not allowed to come on the podcast now. Fuck this guy. Shoot on sight. Um, but no, I mean, like you, you showed up at a time later than we had scheduled, but then you also showed up way further down Court Street than uh what you had planned on and you get to walk <laughs> down 50 court street to 505 and you know maybe you pass a restaurant that you uh take your girlfriend or we end up grabbing a drink at exactly. uh, in the future which which we definitely need to do um i, I wanted to end off on a, a quote by kid cuddy followed by a question for you and the quote by kid cuddy is Never regret something because at one point, everything you did was exactly what you wanted to do. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to realize. I wanted to ask you, what's something you once regretted that you now look back on in a more positive light? Like it was part of the plan. Hmm. If there is something. 
That's a really good question. I had some time to think about it. Hmm. Coming on this podcast. Yeah, huge, <laughs> huge regret. Yeah. Um, guess this is a, a very recent thing for me. Um, guess it, and it's very personal. I'm not going to share everything, but my my family got pretty disjointed a couple of years back, and I spent a lot of time away from my grandfather, who was a role model of mine, and. I re he passed away just last month and for the past three years I really wasn't I talked to him maybe once every you know couple months and this is a man who I spent you know almost every day with growing up he lived down the street from me and when he died I felt so much regret you know for letting family drama get in the way of our relationship and these past three years, or it was like four years where I wasn't spending time with him, you know, like I, I regretted all that time that we could have shared together. And, but now what I'm coming to accept is that I try in this past November, I tried, you know, really hard to put my family back together. I took, you know, really progressive steps to be really empathetic to the drama that was happening on both sides. And I brought, you know, I had people talking in my family that weren't, haven't talked in years. You know, I started having, you know, a closer relationship with him. And I don't regret the experience anymore, even though I wish I spent time with my grandfather. But, you know, taking these courageous steps to bring everyone back together it was a big learning experience for me. And I, you know, will never be afraid to make those decisions in the future yeah. to, to be more empathetic to people that I don't agree with. You know, like, like that was really hard to do to try and put myself in, in their shoes and to recognize their pain that they're going through as well, even though I have my own pain that, you know, is against theirs. You know, I will never be afraid to be empathetic to someone that I completely disagree with. And that was a huge lesson I learned. And also that I will never let, you know, drama or arguments get in the way of relationships I really care about. And so I would never have learned those lessons as deeply as I have now if it wasn't, you know, for the situation that I regretted. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And, and that's something, you know, I, I, I need to get better at as well as um, not letting the family dynamics, even dynamics that existed before I was born, get in the way of the logistics of just meeting up with someone and seeing them. Because mm -hmm. sometimes there'll be, there'll be people in my family where maybe there's past history and you know, their aunt or uncle or whatever, like they, they've done something where people don't talk to them in the family, but you know, their son or daughter is my cousin. And so I haven't seen them in a while too. So it's like all these things that enter my mind 
that shouldn't be part of the equation of seeing someone, but it just, all this shit gets in the way of family because family's messy, but it's also great Mm -hmm. and it's also beautiful. And so, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, I think that's a great spot to end off is, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in a, in a spot with your family where you feel good about seeing them and they're people that you want in your life to not let the background shit and, uh, like what we were talking about with the music industry before, like all, all the things that you're paying attention to. I forget the the exact word um, that we were using to talk about it, but like other oh, games, like we were talking mm-hmm. about like games in the music industry, like same thing applies to family. Don't let the games of family, the games of relationship get in the way of building the relationship with that person in ways that matter, which is spending the time. Yeah. I mean, it's easier said than done and it takes courage and because you're, you're going to face conflict. But like I've been saying in the past couple of minutes is the, the only way is through. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gavin, for coming on the podcast for round two. This, this has been a fucking blast. Thanks for having me. I've, I've, t- I've of course, uh, anytime that I've taken too much of your time, uh, fucking two hours and 53 minutes. Oh, wow. It went in a blink of an eye. Uh, I, I, I want to give you an opportunity to plug everything and anything that you want as we end off uh, the tour, Instagram, newsletter, website, uh, record label, anything you want people to check out. And I'll link all the things that Gavin is saying in the podcast description. Sure. Um, well, you could follow me at Gavin Chops on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. But I would love if you also followed my label. It's at Pack Rex on Instagram. If you're a big fan of music and you're a big fan of music discovery and you're a big fan of like really great music videos and visuals and just really great art in general, um, it's a place for you. And we would love to have you as part of the Pack family. Thank you guys for listening. If you're, if you're watching this uh, 50, hopefully 100 years from now in the metaverse, <laughs> what's up? And uh, talk to you guys next time. Thanks for having me again. Hey guys, before you go, this is a quick reminder to check out Auxoro Premium, where you gain access to bonus episodes, the unlicensed therapy series, exclusive AMA episodes, and the entire premium archive, which has over 25 hours of content already posted and it grows every month. You get all that for five bucks a month at auxoro.supercast.com. That's A-U-X-O-R-O.supercast.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at at Auxoro and get the video version of all the podcasts on the Auxoro YouTube channel. Also, one of the best ways to help the show grow is to rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. This pleases the Apple overlords and makes Auxoro shows appear higher in searches. Thank you guys for the support and I'll talk to you next time.